This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. And we hope you had a fantastic Easter weekend. We know that uh, Terry South was down in Southern California. We love to fill you in on all of his whereabouts. We, uh, you're looking a little um, lobsterish, little red. Yeah, got kind of fried. Man, my kid, would... I, I got the suntan lotion on the kids, but not me. Wow, that's noble of you, though. Yeah, about halfway through the day, I'm like, wow, I feel, I feel hot. <laughs> huh? And I went, oh man, and it was too late by then. But you had a great time. You went to oh, Legoland. Yeah. And uh, you went on the few rides that they had? Yeah, there's, what, a dragon roller coaster, which is kind of fun. You know, I grew up in Southern California, never once went to Legoland. I don't know. It's, it's, it's Legos. It's is it worth the trek? Legos. Sure. Your kids right. would love it. Mm. Now, for you, uh, there's, there's a few moments where you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting because, you know, they make things out of Legos. But I've heard that uh, they have Lego short movies there yep. and they make fun of the fact that they're cl- the voiceovers are clearly not those of the celebrities that voice them in the movies yes <laughs> they, my brother called it a uh, lego movie propaganda film okay basically it was so uh, instead of if you're watching the lego movie you was it mr lord business is that what yes. lord, mr business whatever that character voiced by will ferrell i think it was Patton oswald that uh, was the the villain in this short they made but he was like the cousin <laughs> okay the cousin of mr business i yeah. forget his name but it sounded like it was Patton oswald that voiced it i could i can see how he would be less expensive than will ferrell yeah so it was that kind of thing but it was still you know the kids liked it it was a 4d movie experience what's the fourth d they spray water and wind and- oh Make you kind of experience, but not like the weird sense or anything like no. that. Okay, good, because those are the worst. I've yeah. been to one of those for Lilo and Stitch Ooh. at Disney World, and yeah, a bunch of unpleasant smells. But and uh, then just rides and just kids having fun. Cool. So. Any Easter egg hunts? There was one at yeah. a, my cousin's house. That was kind of fun for the kids. But uh, <sighs> there was one at our hotel. Which was odd because they just had sort of a patio area. Mm-hmm. So the eggs weren't really hidden. They were just like on the cement. Oh, yeah. I was, so, see, I can't do uh, what most parents do and they just, you know, they grab handfuls and kind of just sprinkle them out over the lawn. Oh, yeah. I've got to hide them. Oh, we hide, we hit them like, uh, we had about six to 10 eggs that we brought with us and just yeah. get them all over the like hotel room. Yeah. So the that's, kids oh, woke up fun. and ran around. So a little bit of that's that. Cool. Just being away, it's kind of tough to do that. Yeah. Type of an Easter situation, but we were able to try to help them out that Sounds way. Sounds like you made it creative and fun. Yes. Good for you. And then we fought TSA and airports and lines and Ooh. the part I don't like. Hey, but you flew. If, if I could skip that whole part and just get to the destination, it'd make vacation a lot more interesting to me. But would you would you rather have done that again or would you rather have driven the 11 hours because you were down in san diego yeah, I, won't, right? I won't drive yeah. i did that as a kid my parents actually drove down it's yeah. like no i'm not doing that well day. not with the way things have changed today you can't just you can't just make a bed in the back seat and lay down for the whole ride there you've actually no. got to sit in a seat belt or a car seat yeah what a hassle makes a hassle so yeah <laughs> it's good but again tsa i'm taking off my shoes yeah Come on, they they say your kid doesn't have to, but then my kid wants to. He thinks it's fun. 
the kids spend most of their time with no shoes on anyway. Yeah, so. so. No hassle for them. <laughs> Terry South, what else is going on around the rest of the country? A 13-year-old boy was miraculously rescued Monday after falling into a river of sewage in Los Angeles, getting swept away this. and spending more than 12 hours in the city's toxic and maze-like underground sewer system. Jesse Hernandez had been playing with other children on a wooden plank over an access portal to the sewer system during a family outing Sunday in Los Angeles Park. When a plank broke, Jesse fell about 25 feet Landed in fast-moving sewage, which is not usually a phrase you hear. Right. Uh, said a spokesman for the L.A. Fire Department. The other children immediately notified adults who called 911, initiating a frantic, exhaustive 12-hour search of the maze-like underground pipe uh, using cameras uh, propped up on flotation devices. Basically, there's maps, but no one can really read them because they just kept building the system out as, as L.A. has grown. And I'm sure this isn't an issue that they've faced yet. No, so. you don't have to go down there and search for... I mean, right. they go down there when there's a problem. Right? Yeah. No one goes down there and hangs out. Uh, rescuers finally found Jesse after seeing an images of a handprint on a sewage pipe. Hmm. They had those those cameras down there, and somebody, they looked, oh, there's a handprint, and they found yeah. it. A sanitation crew rushed into the area and opened a manhole, and they were able to pull him out. Oh. He said it was just hours of listening to water drip. Oh, my goodness. So it was really not a pleasant experience, so, other than being, you know, in sewage. Most kids were looking for eggs. These yeah. people were looking for a kid. A kid. Wow. And uh, they brought him out, hosed him off, lots of saline through nostrils just to make sure there's nothing to cause further uh, uh. health problems for the kid. But uh, he's safe, back with his family. Uh, other news, demanding an increase in pay for, and funding for schools. Thousands of teachers in Kentucky and Oklahoma spent Monday on strike, with many attending demonstrations in front of their state capitals. Oklahoma's three largest school districts, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and Edmond, will remain closed today as they continue their protest of their uh, their current working condition, I guess. So, Is Becky... Uh, div- DeVos, what's her name? Is she still the... the Betsy edu- DeVos? Yes. Is she still the, the head of... Yeah. Oh, okay. But but the, the National uh, Department of Education doesn't really deal with the uh, individual teachers. And sure. That's more of a state's issue. Yeah. There's other concerns with the Department of Education that are far beyond that. This but at the just... moment, this is about pay. This is about 401k. Some of this is in Oklahoma. It's about, like, you know, textbooks that are being held together with duct tape. Oh. Lack of desks for kids to sit in, so kids are sitting on the floor and over, you know, overstuffed classes, just things like that. This is just a tough year for schools overall. I saw an interview with a teacher that is working forty hours beyond the time actually in class. She's oh. teaching online classes, wow, just to make ends meet because she says if she doesn't do that, then she's on food stamps with just her state pay. Oh. Hey, come on, yeah, what are we doing? We we can do better than that. Um, other news, President Trump has reportedly invited Vladimir Putin to the White House for a visit, according to a statement from the Kremlin. Putin aide Yuri Yashkov, huh? hmm? that close? Don't know? Yeah, okay. no, that's good. Uh, told reporters Monday that during a March 20th phone conversation, Trump suggested that the first meeting would be held in Washington between the two leaders. If everything goes well, I hope that the American side would not refuse its proposal to discuss the possibility of organizing the summit talks. According to a French uh, news agency, a senior U.S. official did not deny that Trump floated the idea, noting that no planning has begun as of yet. This, of course, had to uh, happen before all the uh, uh, kicking out of each other's uh, you know, representatives and uh, yeah. 
all the di- diplomatic things that happened over the last few weeks as the uh, respective Democrats were kicked out and then Russia reciprocated by kicking out all of our, not all of them, but about 30 hmm. or whatever. So uh, the stock market took a tumble Monday. The Dow Jones toppled more than 458 points. Then this was in response to President Trump or uh, the president going after Amazon. On Twitter and Facebook, uh, on Twitter, Facebook having their tough problems, right? So mm-hmm. you have Amazon and Facebook struggling, so the kind of the tech sector dipped. Uh, China raised import duties on three billion uh, list of U.S. pork, fruit, and other products Monday in an escalating tariff dispute with the uh, the president and a company's worrying that might depress global commerce. So all that sort of managed to drop the whole stock market. Uh, people are very concerned as you have a sure. possible trade war and then is trump going to regulate online companies that are making a lot of money right now amazon will bounce back though we'll see trump doesn't like the guy that is the ceo because he owns the washington post ah that's kind of the connection there uh finally a kansas woman suspicious that someone had broken into her home later uh found an ex-boyfriend's legs punched through her ceiling what? Yeah, so a 23-year-old woman <laughs> called police, this is in Kansas, to her house Thursday after finding her front door chained from the inside. Hmm. So she left the house, came back, and it was locked from the inside. Okay. Police say they searched the house but didn't find an intruder. Two hours later, the woman and her current boyfriend heard a loud noise and found the 25-year-old former boyfriend had fallen through the living room ceiling. Hmm. He was up in was, the attic. Was he installing some security cameras or something or spy no, cameras? not sure what he was doing hmm. in there. Police okay. said the suspect, Tyler Bergkamp, was hiding in the attic. Police say the current boyfriend pulled Bergkamp's legs through the ceiling and <laughs> began fighting him. <laughs> Leg <laughs> fighting. So now not only do you have the two holes, now you have just a massive hole, which is probably going to have to be all replaced anyways, but you know. That is a new Olympic sport I heard is leg fighting. Leg fighting. Yeah. So he pulled the guy through the uh, the ceiling and started beating him up. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, he was probably up there either, you know, getting some stuff he left behind right. or installing some sort of spy device. Yeah, he's just creeping around. Why so. would he lock himself inside, though? It's pretty obvious that someone's in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting, Think it through, buddy. Interesting story. Don't do that. Yeah. Anyway, doesn't sound like a very good use of time. Which is interesting because when we return, we're going to be speaking with our guest about how to, or the use of time, and actually the use of energy. And that story that Terry just shared with us, not a good use of time or energy. But we're going to tell you how to save it when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, Americans are spending less time in malls and movie theaters, and they're actually spending more time at home. They're also spending less time in offices and more time in workspaces in their homes. But has this change, uh, has it shifted energy use here in America? Well, here to speak to us uh, today about it is Ashuk Saker, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas at Austin. Ashuk, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me here. This just sounds like a really fascinating study that you guys did. Uh, in the in the article that you wrote, you talked about how 
technology is just transforming our lifestyles, and that's you know that's no secret or anything. But um, how do we how do we measure the impact that technology is having on our lives? How how did you do it in this study that you conducted? Sure. Um, so uh, we we wanted to uh, st- study the impact by understanding how people are spending their time and how technology is changing how people are spending their time from their uh, historic patterns. So uh, we uh, we looked at a database that actually collects every year how an average American is spending their time, and we just observed those changes and then mathematically associated those changes to an energy change. I'm guessing it's mostly Netflix use, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, uh, we actually see, uh, I mean, depending on who uh, we are thinking about, for example, if you take an, uh, you know, a full-time employee, we actually see the biggest change is uh, they doing work at home. Interesting. Over the past 10 years, uh, between 2003 and 2012. Yeah. So how does this affect, you know, like a typical office? Do you Do you feel like... Do you feel like this is a strictly positive thing? Or are there setbacks of this? I mean, why aren't we all just working from home if we're saving if we're saving energy? Right. So, I mean, there has been a lot of work in the in the in the uh, productivity side, productivity of uh, um, you know workers working from home. But I mean, my I mean, my work did not cover that. Uh, there is, I mean, uh, to summarize the results, there is, you know, someone, some people have said that there is an increase in productivity, but some have said there is a net decrease. Uh, but I, my work was not uh, in that. Uh, so if you think about uh, energy in particular, there is there is not a direct link associated with a reduction in energy at office, so office spaces. Uh, so if, however, there would be a direct increase in energy at home. Interesting. But what we are measuring is we are measuring the average decrease. So, for example, if you see a lot of people not going, uh, not working from home, then you don't need such a large office space. So the change in energy comes over time. So we have averaged those, say, uh, you know, savings in energy in our study. Did I make sense? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> how what is the breakup of our energy use at home? Uh, so if you think about it, um, most of it, if I don't have the top of my head, so I'll probably give you ranges. So 30 to 40 percentage would be from our heating uh, and cooling systems. And we would have another uh, 30 percent from uh, all the electronics and then the remaining from, you know, hot water, hot water use. Yeah. Wow. So. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know overall. So you said that the the study was from uh, 2003 to 2012. Mm-hmm. So we're we're spending overall we're spending more time at home, less time at work. How did how does that change when you look at dem, uh, different demographics? Right. So when we when we look at different demographics, actually, it's, uh, I mean, our study provides some interesting insights. For example, if you Look at the people aged between 18 to 24 in 2003 uh, and 2012. We see that they they have the highest change. Uh, for example, uh, they spend 33 hours more at home uh, in the year 2012 compared to 2003. 
this change is actually almost close to two times than that of an average population or even between the population between 25 to 64 the other interesting thing that we noticed was uh, if you take the people who are older than 65 they have a trend reversal meaning they they are actually spending uh, more time outside but less time at home so initially they used to spend a lot of time at home in initially in a sense in 2003 but uh, they are spending less time at home i i think those are because of uh, increase in uh, retirement age yeah uh, and also i think there is also the other fact that uh, people are now more healthy and also they can move uh, with uber and uh, other technology or uh, and etc yeah So Ashok if we're if we're spending if we're consuming more energy at home since we're spending mm-hmm. more time at home how mm-hmm. are we reducing the total energy demand overall Right so if you think about it so the the core metric here is time so since time is constant if you're spending more time at home it means that you're not spending time elsewhere right so uh the the, the highest uh, energy consuming aspects of our lifestyle are first transportation then it's followed by not directly but it is followed by uh, the time that you spend in commercial spaces not directly right so because, uh, not directly so so if you think about it because you are not doing those top two activities that is traveling and not spending time in uh, commercial areas so but you're spending more time at home which is the least energy intensive out of these two there is a net energy decrease yeah if you're just joining us we're speaking with Ashok Saker uh who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas at Austin Ashok I'm Ashok I'm I'm wondering how how is this going to affect energy policy Uh um, so I mean uh, there are a couple of uh, aspects for example um if you if you think about there are lots of uh state level and national level energy efficiency programs uh where there are incentives for ho- homeowners to purchase energy efficient technology so if you if you understand how people are spending their time uh there is an opportunity for us to create like a personalized energy efficiency plans uh that you know you know this is uh, my results are average right so there there could be certain people who uh you know who probably do not use uh, a hvac system as um as others so you know or they could be having really an old tv uh, uh you know and they could be watching a lot a lot lot more television than the average population so there is an opportunity for us to create personalized energy efficiency plans uh so that is one aspect and then the other aspect is also thinking about how you allocate you know the tax dollars to these energy efficiency programs so recently there has been a lot of uh, you know there has been a budget cut for epa especially the energy star program uh, which focuses on residential energy efficiency so you know given that our trend shows that people are going to spend more time at home this actually uh you know says that well you know the budget cuts are going to actually affect uh, the energy efficiency efforts more uh, because we are seeing you know because we are seeing that people are spending more time at home there's going to be an increase in energy at home so it would be 
this is going to be important to reduce energy at home. Ashok, I, I really hope my wife is listening because what I'm hearing is if, you know, we've got an older TV and it could be eating up a lot more energy than we need to be eating up with our TV consumption. So maybe it's time for us to just break down and get a new TV for the sake of energy, of course. Right? Uh, no, so, no, that's, that's not <laughs> true. So uh, one thing that uh, lots of people uh, still do not know is energy efficiency is one of the um, – how, you know, energy efficiency upgrades are the most cost-benefit up, upgrade that any household can do. Usually, over time, it pays for itself. Yeah. Uh, so if you know that you're spending a lot of time watching television, uh, you know, just getting an Energy Star uh, TV uh, when you're going to purchase, that would uh, pay for itself over time. Yeah. Ashik, I'm, I'm looking at this this pie chart here in your study, and mm-hmm. and as you mentioned, uh, a lot of our energy consumption is, is coming from space heating or space cooling. And you also mm-hmm. mentioned some of these smart devices. Is that going to make a significant change in this pie chart by adopting or by purchasing some of those uh smart devices we just purchased one i can't remember the the brand the name brand of it but uh we've noticed that there are options to to put settings on it you know to make it a more energy efficient usage do you is it going to make much of a difference is this is this a thermostat that you're talking about yeah yeah right right so uh actually so again here scientifically there you know people are saying uh the majority of the studies are saying that it's, it will make a difference. Uh, however, there are some conflicting evidence. But first, let me talk about uh, you know the majority of the studies. So, what what you know the smart thermostat does is, uh, in fact, what it helps to do is. So, let's say uh, you are in a really cold place um, and you are turning up the heat, and you know you're leaving. You know when you you're, you're and you're a full time. You know both. Uh, you and your wife are uh, full-time workers, so you, that means you're going away from home and coming back. There is nobody at home. So do you, in those cases, ideally, it would be nice to turn down the uh, heat and then gradually increase uh, increase it before you reach home. Right. So that your household is at, the, uh, is at a comfortable temperature. So the, the key uh, difference here is you don't. You you want it to gradually improve. So when you come back home and you change uh, the thermostat setting, you know, let's say the outside temperature is like 30 Fahrenheit and you want it at 60. So there's the, this huge difference uh, in temperature, and you know, because you want the change to happen quickly, there is more energy that is consumed. So what these thermostats would do is, if you kind of set a timer, it would gradually increase the temperature, uh, therefore keeping the amount of uh, you know, energy needed to heat your home at the minimum level. Yeah. Uh, usually what happens, and for, so therefore, now now I gave you an example for a person who actually goes out and come back, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about a person who always stays at home, a smart thermostat might not make sense. Yeah, yeah. Right? So so that's 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 the conflicting evidence. But so more, more, for most people, it would save it. Ashok, another thing that I, I read in your, your article that I found really interesting is that 
people that are spending more time at home are actually you're suggesting that they actually get more sleep, which I think is interesting because I feel like nowadays people are getting less sleep with these these pressures from work, but it, it seems like if they're spending more time at home, they're actually getting more sleep. No, so so actually, uh, you know, we we don't wait. So the data does say that people are sleeping more. However, I I don't think we should look at it as that as people are spending more time, they are actually sleeping more. There are a couple of things. So we don't. I mean, we are actually observing the observing the pattern of an average American, right? So if you know, let's assume that if the demographics have changed to older population, there is a chance that your average would change to, you know, people sleeping more, right? Or uh, if, you, if, if the demographics have changed to a more uh, uh, younger uh, population, you know, who, uh, who needs a lot more sleep, then the average would change as well. So I don't think it's associated with, you know, people spending more time at home. You know, to be frank, even this, that, that way it doesn't suit me as well. I don't get a lot of sleep. And these devices are, uh, you know, there's a lot of other studies in the health uh, uh, side which talk about how, you know, you know, your, your smartphone is creeping into your uh, the bedtime and as you see the, you know, white light coming from the smartphone, right. making you feel, um, making you feel, I mean, it doesn't get you a good enough a quality sleep. Yeah, that's why I like to keep my smartphone across the room. Yeah that's, yeah, that's that's a really good strategy. I I I try it for some time, but then I keep uh, switching back and forth. Yeah, and this is just a little personal insight into me. I actually mm-hmm. do like seeing what time it is throughout the night, so that when I wake up and see the clock, I get this refreshing feeling of ah, I still have two more hours before I have to get up. <laughs> it's it's weird, I know, but that's just me. Um, uh-huh. Ashok, you also mentioned in here one way that that people are are measuring how they're spending their time and and getting kind of a snapshot of their energy consumption as well is by keeping a little bit of a diary. And this seems like a wonderful idea, especially if you're feeling like, you know what, I maybe I'm spending a little too much time watching Netflix or maybe I'm spending a little too much time online doing work at home. It it Mm -hmm. seems like that would give people a great idea or a great snapshot of how they can kind of step back or scale back. No, it, it's 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 really true. So so people. So this this time diary that we are talking about generally is definitely a very useful way for people to uh, manage their time. Um, I I tried it uh, when I was very young. Um, actually, the reason I'm doing this particular research is because I've been thinking about time a lot uh, from when I was very young. Like you know, trying to see what are the activities I do and you know categorize that into different. Um, uh, you know, different, uh, act, you know, categories, I guess. So, but, 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 I mean, there is also this other point here, which I think, uh, you know, this listeners to your show would uh, find it useful, which is the data that we actually collected uh, is done by uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. They actually do a survey each year uh, and they actually collect the time diaries of around more than 11,000 Americans every year. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a multi-year effort, as I mentioned, uh, and it's one of the best uh, time data that you can uh, get uh, in the world, uh, especially because 
other countries do conduct a time diary analysis uh, time you know collect time diaries but they don't conduct it every year so uh, in here we have this huge opportunity to you know look at these changes over every year um and the way they collect this collect this data is they give you they you know they select you uh, and then they you know they give you a time when they would give you a call and then they ask you to talk about uh what you did the previous day so uh, usually it's like a you know interview style they would call me up and then they would ask me hey uh, what were you doing at 4 a.m in the morning and yeah sleeping and then uh, they would collect this information for 24 hours of a person's uh, life interesting yeah uh, ashok just in closing here are there any other mm-hmm. ideas that you can provide us with today to save on our energy consumption um one one definite idea is there are a lot of uh, rebates that you can avail from your local utility when you are going to purchase uh, a lot of your uh, appliances for your home uh please make use of it and uh yeah please make use of it that that would be the biggest advice that i can His name is Ashuk Saker and Ashuk we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend show. And there you have it folks, just some ideas on not not just some ideas but some insight into how much energy we're we're consuming at home and also some ideas on how we can save some energy. Again Ashuk Saker, thank you so much for your time. When we return, we are going to revisit one of Dr. Matt's coaching corners here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! You know, uh, as we as we talk about anything on the show, we... we uh, our goal is to influence you, right? To, to hopefully give you some ideas, some tools, some real-life solutions. And part of the Coach's Corner, our goal is to give you some some takeaway, something you can go and do. As we were talking with, should we you know, wait for red flags to address student mental health issues? Should we wait till there's a shooting? Should we wait till we can all react? Um, no, right? So one of the ideas I wanted to talk about in the Coach's Corner was the idea of Proactive versus reactive, and um, and reactivity. And uh, the the problem is, it's there's just so much going on. We don't pay attention to everything. We we can't feasibly pay attention to everything, except again, once we have a shooting or we have an event that we can all react to, then we start really mobilizing all of the forces. And, uh, you know, it turns into discussions of gun legislation. It turns into, um, you know, movements. The kids get out of school to go fight uh, the issue. One of the solutions that uh, our last guest, Nate, brought to us is the fact that there are ways to understand very quickly the mental health needs of students and um, to assess those needs, to see if they have the potential of of having – some problems coming up simply because of what's going on in their lifestyle, in their home, in their, in their, are they treated properly and appropriately? Do they tend to be bullied? Other issues that can, can come up in these evaluations. And the, 
the idea that we we don't have time for it or we have other rights that would forbid us from a teacher doing such a quick triage, remember, they're already doing it. They're already making these assessments. They're already questioning it as a parent or as a teacher who's trying to do the best they can with their students anyway. And it's just more additive. But the idea that we could proactively start impacting the mental health issues and needs of our kids before they turn into full-fledged fights and arguments and, you know, a beatdown on the playground would be really valuable, wouldn't it? And wouldn't that actually help our psychologists in schools also know how to to triage and, and who to work with? And couldn't we take certain groups of these kids and actually teach them other healthy, meaningful ways to manage anxiety? and uh, meaningful ways to, to evaluate their depression and and have other assessments or have other people, other resources from the community come in. It's, it's powerful. Anytime you can do it proactively. Now, one of the things that I learned um, when I was working with uh, Franklin Covey and, and Stephen Covey from the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is the idea of the definition of proactive versus reactive. Proactivity means you make decisions based on your values and your principles. Reactivity means you make the decisions based on mood, situation, or circumstance. And wouldn't it be powerful if we had some time to be more proactive in the making of our choices of our in our educational system, in the protection of our kids, instead of constantly doing it reactively out of our mood, our situation, or that circumstance? The minute we are always following... Um, the lead of a problem, uh, it seems like we're already behind the gun, literally, right? We're already behind the problem. And then it becomes more of a reactive decision, and then your reaction drives my reaction, and it becomes a, a reactive, chaotic environment versus choosing ahead of time. What do we know causes some of these issues with uh, violence in our schools? We know mental health is one of the issues, Right. We know that there's a parenting side to this. We know that many, the majority, minus one of the school shootings recently, were fatherless children. Their fathers weren't around. Uh, that would probably be an indicator, I'm betting, on one, of the, on one of the assessments that our last guest was talking about. We know that uh, access to weapons or guns is another issue. We know that um, just pressure from the community and schools. We know bullying is another issue. So... There is a lot. We can't just expect teachers to do everything, but we can be more proactive as parents in setting up these opportunities. And I'm telling you, proactive is is the way, especially when we now know that there's teachers, there's everybody knows that that there are people that are desperately in need of help. So we also need some laws that make it a little easier to uh, to help those people that don't even know they need it. Now, speaking of proactivity, this is why I wanted to jump on that idea. Uh, there is a great example of proactivity who is a, from a gas station clerk, listen to this, that tracks down a customer who lost a lottery ticket. Now, after a man accidentally dropped a lottery ticket that was worth $1 million, he won. It was worth $1 million in a Salina, Kansas gas station. The employee ensured that the winning ticket made it back to the right guy. The ticket was actually purchased in Lincoln, Kansas, but while stopped at a Salina gas station, the winner's brother held the ticket in his hand, then he dropped it. 
After spotting it, when the brothers were gone, employees picked up the ticket, scanned it, discovering it was worth $1 million. It wasn't signed, though, and so any one of the employees could have claimed it as their own. But they waited to see if the men would return, and when they came back a few hours later, the ticket was turned over to the rightful owner. The winner asked to stay anonymous, and the Kansas Lottery has not revealed the name of the Salina gas station where the ticket was lost. It's just nice to know where you still see good Samaritans out there, right? So, proactivity. Looking for the guy, tracking down the guy, doing what you can to live according to your value system. There are people out there doing it. There are people trying it. Our teachers are trying it. Our police officers are trying it. And um, we all need to be trying it. So ask yourself, where do you need a little more proactivity in your life? Where do you need to, to actually proactively start working on something instead of constantly reacting to it the rest of your days? And hopefully you can just make a little progress on it. You don't need to fix the issue perfectly, but you can find one little solution to start uh, improving it today. We are going to uh, continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, a while back, uh, Dr. Matt and Kim Giles, who's the president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching, they spent a few minutes talking about the benefits of a negative attitude, and uh, Dr. Matt began the interview by asking why she wanted to talk about the benefits of a negative attitude. The article that I wrote was The Quirky Benefits of a Negative Attitude. The Quirky Benefits. Yes. Yeah, so Okay, so there's some positive things that... Having a negative attitude can do for you. It keeps people away from you. It does. That's and, a and some people hold on to it for that reason because <laughs> yeah. maybe they don't want anybody around. That's right. Get out of here. A matter of fact, just this morning, one of my coaches uh, messaged me and said she's got a client who is just miserable and just suffering and hates her life. And we've, we're giving her all the tools to change, and she's not using them. Hmm. She's not doing the work. And my coach was, what do I do? And the first thing that came to my mind is she's getting a benefit yeah. from staying a mess. Yeah. She in likes her life. somehow subconsciously that serves her. And there's a lot of people that were were stuck in this place because subconsciously we actually are getting benefits from staying there. Yeah. So this woman, I wonder if she gets sympathy, love, or attention when she's a disaster mm. and she oh, constantly complains. Feel so bad for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us hold on to negative because as a child, that's the only way we got mom or dad's attention or love was if they felt sorry for us. Yeah. So we like our sad stories because they give us that. I had a friend that had a major, you know, like I think they were hit by a car. They were somehow injured seriously when they were young. And they ended up being kind of constantly injured. I mean, they were always they were always rehabilitating and they got a lot of attention. Did it sort of almost become and part of their identity, their identity almost? They were always the broken one that got this feedback for being broken. But then yeah. as an adult, they're no longer broken, like physically. But they have to now deal with that they kind of like that attention. Yeah. I had another client who was so overwhelmed and stressed out and he was – just buried under all this work all the time. And he constantly complained about how overworked and stressed he was. 
And and I gave him all the tools to change his time management and get yeah. his life in order, and none of it worked. And then I finally asked him, what benefit might you be getting from being overwhelmed all the time? And he realized, one, he had always had an excuse to get out of things he didn't want to do because yeah. he was so busy. And he found a lot of people didn't ask him to do more because if he was constantly complaining about how overworked they already knew he was Not, too Don't busy. add more to his plate. Yeah. Interesting. And he, he had a sense of accomplishment, almost like unless I'm overburdened that I'm not working hard enough. And this is proof of what an amazing provider and a good person I am <laughs> that I'm this overwhelmed. Yeah. So there was almost this validation that came from being buried. So that might be why we hang on to the negative because it – it, it supports us somehow. serves us on some level. Oh, that's pathetic. <laughs> but I think a We're lot sick. of us have one foot on the gas and one on the brake when it comes to personal development. Because yeah. if we really change and grow and let go of this negative, we're going to have to be a different type of person. And there's responsibilities mm-hmm. that come with raising well, and fears, the bar. Huh? Now I've got to – I mean yeah. I'm kind of complacent where I am. I don't want to have to go change it now. So so interesting. Right. So oh, anytime you're feeling web. a little stuck, we got some questions you might want to ask yourself. Okay. What am I getting from voicing my complaints, from, from actually telling people how I feel all the time? Now, I suffer from some chronic health problems. Yeah. And I found a lot of people in my boat talk a lot about their, about problems. their problems and how they feel. And you just want to be aware – if there's a subconscious part of you that likes to talk about them to get attention or to get sympathy love, we want to be aware of that. Um, could you have a subconscious tendency to play the self-pity card hmm. a lot? Yeah. You especially want to watch if if people call you on bad behavior and your first thought is, well, you've got to understand you how have no bad idea. my <laughs> life is and I have right. no friends. If that's where you go, that's a sign, right? That's so a sign. If that's your story you tell. You might – Pull the self-pity card as a way to get out of things. Yeah. Um, Also, think back to your childhood and the kind of relationship you had with your parents. What did you have to do to get love and attention? Hmm. Because whatever you did then, you you might still subconsciously Well, I mean, if you had to be bleeding more than your brother, if it was always about who's more injured (laughs) or more damaged, then you've got to always up your game. You've got to be more. Not who did it first, but whose injuries are more serious. (laughs) You seem serious. Yours is a trauma one. Yeah. So ask yourself, if you stopped voicing the complaints, is there any other way that you could feel loved or validated or good about yourself other than that? Yeah. Yeah. Because there are really a lot more healthy ways to get love. Right. Well, in fact, it might even turn people off. If they've heard this complaining all day, they might not be around you as much. Yeah. We think it gives us... Attention and yeah. love, but what we lose is usually respect, mm-hmm. and over time, people do kind of pull back. So That's it's so not true. it's not the best technique, is it? Never is, is it? Darn it! No, it's just unhealthy. A matter of fact, instead of trying to get love from people, we do a lot better if we just are a giver, right? Yeah. If you focus on giving to people, they actually you love f- and respect you. And you'd you feel a lot better more. and be healthier, right? I mean, I mean, that's like I love being as busy as I am until it's killing me, but then. So when everyone, when people come up and say, "Oh, you, you're so busy," I want to agree with them, but I don't want to talk about it. Like, yeah, yeah, you don't need. But to I talk love about it, it. But it's, ugh. 
Then, but so whether I say it or think it, it's the same thing probably, right? Well, I think there's a different level when you're saying it, you're involving other people. In yeah, that's it. true. I am. I, yeah, I'm spreading the goo. Yeah, the negative. So you mentioned on my website, I've got this fear assessment. It's awesome. And the reason we offer it for free for anybody is just we've got all the subconscious programming that's driving a lot of our behavior. Neuroscientists say 95% of the choices we make, we make subconsciously. Yeah. So we're on autopilot. We're not even choosing a lot of our behavior. And the fear assessment actually lets you see on paper what some of your subconscious programming is. Hmm. So if you've got a real terrible need for validation from other people, it's going to show up on that. And it could be something you might want to get more aware of. I mean, really, because it's just feedback. But you're doing something. There's some reason you keep doing what you're doing. And the more data you can get, probably the better choices you can make. And then maybe reevaluate your choices. You're not stuck. I mean, if you're stuck, it's you're choosing it consciously yeah. or subconsciously. Well, I'll tell you one of the exercises I have my clients do is sit down with a piece of paper and tell me the benefits of the negative attitude and talking yeah. about your complaining and then tell me the the downside, what's the cost of that complaining. And then if you changed and you became more positive, what would be the benefits and what would be the negative side oh, of being there? So that they can really see all the factors yeah. and make a conscious choice about how they want to live instead of a subconscious choice. Because that, that's working on you, doing. whether you make whether you overtly say it or not, the, those thoughts are all working on you, keeping you staying the same or changing. So you're just those are questions that help them start to evaluate. But most of us are either changing or stuck yeah. at a subconscious level. We're not choosing how we mm. want to live or be. And right. I know you work with yours on the same thing. Let's figure out what you really want and consciously choose how to get there. That's so big. It really is. 5% of, of our decisions are actually, we're making them versus 95, your body's just kind of we're just reacting. going with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's Isn't sad. that crazy? That's a, I mean, that's most of our behavior. Yeah. We're not well, think of choosing. that. None of us are choosing to, you know, have our heart rate escalate the minute we see something happen. That's not a choice. That's just happening. It's just or when you walk in and you see, you know, your car has a scratch on it, your body's going to naturally start making all these reactions. Oh, but we can you can start to be more consciously aware of this. If this is a fear reaction, mm-hmm. definitely notice a, a scratch on my car is a fear of loss yeah. moment. I just lost, I paid all this money and now I'm losing the clean, beautiful car. So now you get to decide how much you want to suffer over that. Yeah. I mean, isn't that totally in your control? You could go so negative. You could complain to everybody. I can't believe someone's crazy. Well, and everybody would be, well, yeah, I'd be mad too if I just bought a brand new car and my kid ran his bike down the side of it. Yeah, that'd make me mad. So we bring others in for validation in our our drama. Oh, it's pathetic. (laughs) We're going to have more of that interview uh, from Dr. Matt and Kim Giles about the benefits of a negative attitude later on in the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show coming up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Dr. Matt is still in St. George, Utah, where he's spending time with his wonderful family. 
And uh, we wish him well. We wish him a speedy return. But, uh, man, he's probably having a great time. Probably having a chocolate hangover from the Easter holiday. I don't know. He seems like maybe the type of person that would indulge in his children's Easter candy. But so am I then again. Actually, I won't... I won't uh, steal candy from my children, <laughs> which I, maybe I should rephrase that because that just sounds horrible. Steal candy from my own children. Is that stealing, though? Uh, no, it's – there's a tax. I think there's a parent tax. It's it's not really in writing, but it's more of just an inherent – it's it's known that if your children come home with candy, especially if it's like a, a Kit Kat bar – then the parent is going to is going to be entitled to a percentage of that Kit Kat bar. Well, if it's a Kit Kat bar, then definitely. So luckily, I didn't have too much Easter candy over the weekend because very little of my children's candy was in the form of chocolate, which is is no surprise because last year we learned our lesson: you don't hide chocolate in Easter eggs on a blistering hot day. Ooh, because. Ooh. There's going to be a lot of disappointment when those eggs are cracked open and the chocolate is completely melted. More realistic, though. Did you put chocolate or uh, some of the fruity candies in your uh, kids' eggs? Both. I mean, did the Easter Bunny. Oh, true. Both, but they were, you know, in a hotel room. Yeah. So it wasn't out in someone's front yard. An AC room. Yeah. the actual Easter egg hunt at my cousin's house outside, but they placed the eggs... And then we released the kids. It wasn't like they were out there for hours. So. <laughs> Release the kids. Yes. <laughs> yes. I. So in a, it's it's a good thing. There was not more chocolate this weekend. Yeah. Was disappointed. Usually the Easter party has confetti eggs. Confetti eggs? Just egg, egg shells. And they blow out the yolk and you fill it full of confetti and then you just go crack over people's heads and it's just kind of fun. That sounds kind of cruel. It, it is. It's kind of a cruel <laughs> side of Easter. Not the uh, the Easter bunny pinata that we had. Really? Yeah, they, the the mom, the, the my cousin that purchased it, her daughter said she wanted the Easter Bunny pinata. And she's like, should we be hitting the Easter Bunny with a stick? Is that really the thing we should be doing? And the kid's like, yeah, that's what Easter's all about. And, well, no, Easter's about other things. But <laughs> should we have – there's a nice egg over here or any yeah. other – No, she, her daughter wanted an Easter Bunny pinata. I, I would probably want to do it after this year when I didn't get any chocolate. So I you might can take go, some frustration out on the Easter Bunny. Wow. The eggs just aren't enough. There is a uh, you can go to the store and purchase. Yeah, chocolate. But, but this this is chocolate that's delivered by a bunny. I know who doesn't I mean, want that. I understand, but you know, there's options for you there. Man, it sounds like we did not do Easter the right way. It sounds like you guys had a blast. Not fun. to say that we didn't have a blast, but yeah. confetti eggs and. Well, oh, the Easter confetti bunny eggs, pinata. You, when I've gone before, they had those confetti eggs. They didn't have them this year. Huh. I'm not sure why, but there's plenty of eggs, plenty of Easter Bunny pinatas. It's weird. The decision makers are probably still sore after weeks of picking confetti out of their hair. Right. Okay. Right. Anyways, what else is going on around the news? Tens of thousands of public school teachers in Kentucky and Oklahoma converged on their state capitals on Monday, demanding higher wages and better classroom resources. Teachers in the two red states, both run by Republican governors and Republican-dominated legislatures said they're fed up with president, uh, the persistent cuts in education funding. So both these states 
have tried to lower taxes. Yeah. And it's just a drive within kind of a, the Republican uh, approach to government, lower taxes, smaller government. And what that ends up doing is you have public school teachers making less money. Yeah. And then how are they supposed to survive and teach your kids? Yeah. And so that's kind Gosh. of the, you run into a problem when you drop it so low you can't pay for the services that you want to have. And one of those would be public school teachers. Yeah. So I wonder what's going to happen. wonder what the result of this will In be. In West Virginia, they held out for almost a week and a half, almost two weeks. I can't remember how long the strike was, but they got their 5% raise. Well, good for them. It's not a lot, but it's it's something more than they've gotten in quite a while. So they were able to hold out. Every, every uh, public school in the entire state of West Virginia was out for like a week and a half. It's one which of those... puts stress on parents because they have what you do with sure. your kids. you got to go to work. And I'm sure those kids at the time are thinking, oh, this is great. But then at the end of the year when they have to make up that week and a half, that's... Not yeah. sure how that works. <laughs> but yeah, that would be like, wait a second, I'm yeah. still in school? So uh, it, many of the demonstrators on Monday wore red t-shirts reading, I support public schools in uh, solidarity for the nationwide grassroots movement that was, that was started online. The Oklahoma teachers plan to continue that classroom walkout today and have... And uh, prompting the Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and other school districts to cancel school for a second day. The White House Mm. is reportedly investigating the Environmental Protection Agency Chief Scott Pruitt for possible ethics violations. According to the Wall Street Journal, the embattled Pruitt's job is still secure, but few people inside the White House are defending his actions. Last week, it was revealed that Pruitt was renting a space in a Washington, D.C. condominium owned by an energy lobbyist. So the head of the Environmental Protection Agency was renting a condo from a lobbyist for the energy industry. That's interesting. Possibly a conflict of interest yeah. there. Now, apparently that's not a big that's not a problem. You can do that. But the 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 part that brought everyone like eyes eyebrows raised is he was uh, he was uh paying for it for $50 a night that he stayed in the condo. Okay. $50 a night in Washington, D.C.? You don't find that. You can, I don't know if no. you can get a cardboard box. No. That's a, that's a good rate. So on Monday, the New York Times reported that the lobbyist client was approved for a pipeline expansion plan. So that lobbyist that was giving him the $50 a night deal was approved for a pipeline expansion through the EPA. Pruitt has also been under fire for his travel accommodations, lavish expenses for first-class air travel, right. which many cabinet members for the president have been uh, caught in. They're using expensive forms of travel. So See, he's had many different issues. And what it really kind of seems like is uh, there's no problem until it becomes an issue, and then the White House has to deal with it, then it's a problem. Yeah, why... why? Is there the need for first class? I could understand mm-hmm. it if you were like a highly recognizable well, figure. Yeah. But uh, who's going to know what now, the head of the EPA looks like? Pruitt has said that he gets yelled at quite a bit in uh, in airports. Really? Because uh, <laughs> he's turning back all these environmental yeah. protection things, that uh, rules and laws that have been passed, and he's overturning them and ro- rolling back regulations. So enough people do know what he looks like. Well, people that care about these issues. Sure. So he doesn't want to get yelled at. Doesn't want to yeah. be bothered by you know the voting public. Yeah, but any any number of of public people could be yelled at in oh, yeah. coach. Sure, and you don't even have to be a well known figure. No, so it's it's interesting. 
uh, these are the things coming out, and you know, you'd like to pay fifty bucks a night for a condo in DC. That'd be a great deal. Mm. Uh, further, uh, Environmental Protection Agency announced yesterday it plans to roll back emission standards for cars and trucks set under President Barack Obama, claiming the regulations present challenges for auto manufacturers due to feasibility and practicability. Which I don't know if is a word, but it, that's the way it, it was is. written. As the regulations stand now, new vehicles must get thirty-six miles per gallon by twenty twenty-five. But those standards are too high, the EPA said. Come the agency on. is working with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to come up with new standards. It's unclear how this will play out in California. The state set its own pollution and gas mileage standards, currently in the same uh, currently the same as federal guidelines, with about 12 other states following California's lead. While automakers approve of the move, environmentalists argue that it will increase pollution and make it more expensive to fill up vehicles. Hmm. Because you think 36 miles per gallon, you're going to fill up less. That would be fantastic. I don't know what the the problem is here other than maybe the automakers don't like it because they have to make the cars more efficient, which is kind of difficult for them. Uh, California and New York are suing Hmm. to see if they could stop that change because they've already had these rules. If if, – they have the standard following the federal government, and then the federal government rolls it back. But you already got you know programs moving forward and money spent that way. It turns yeah. into an expensive transition for the state, so they want to keep it the way it is. And I I don't know. I don't want to see my air that I'm breathing. Yeah, and I think I think a majority of people kind of feel that way. So I'm not sure why you would change that rule, but maybe it is difficult. I'm two not sure. Places that would definitely need their cars to be more efficient because. Right. They don't move at all. No, they all just sit there and burn with <laughs> gas, right? And finally, an underground blast sent one, a 100-pound manhole cover flying into the air in Manhattan on Monday, nearly hitting two people walking by before it came crashing down just outside a restaurant, the video shows. Those the, suckers are heavy. As the manhole exploded, at least two passers-by strolling down the street tucked their umbrellas under their arms and ran. As smoke shrouded the icy sidewalk. That's I thought you were going to say they held their umbrellas yeah, up to I, guard I, them from the man. Control. That was my first thought, too. <laughs> the cover ended up just outside the doors of a uh, Thai food restaurant. Moments later, another manhole across the street exploded. When a pair of manhole blasts rattled lower Manhattan during the uh, evening rush in late March, fire officials reminded the public that underground fires and explosions aren't uncommon in the city following wintry storms. So this wasn't like a Ra's al Ghul weaponizing the water supply situation? No. Okay, good. No, this That's was, good. as it says, salt and snow melting and going into manholes. It decays the rubberized coatings on electrical conduits and starts fires, said the deputy fire chief at the uh, chief of the FDNY. So it's just the melting snow messing with the electrical connections, causes a spark, which causes a fire, and then it just builds, and then there's an explosion, and the manhole cover comes flying off. Weird. And as the guy says, the FDNY FDNY deputy chief says, it happens every winter. Just chill out, people. You're fine. (laughs) This is common. Okay. Exploding manhole cover. So watch out. Yeah, you're going to see a sign on the side of the road that says, watch for exploding manhole covers. I guess. Just like when you're driving in between the mountains, you see watch for falling rocks. Yeah, just a common everyday occurrence. Sure. I guess so. Interesting uh, that you mentioned transit and some of these transportation issues that we're experiencing, especially in California and New York. They're suing. Because when we return, we're going to be revisiting an interview that uh, Dr. Matt conducted with Matt Mitchell talking about the end of public transit. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show.
welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as ride-sharing programs such as Uber and Lyft are seemingly undermining public busing and transportation services in timeliness, flexibility, and reasonable prices, should our government give over more public services to the private sector? Well, a few months back, Matt Townsend spoke with Dr. Matthew D. Mitchell, a senior research fellow at and director of the Project for the Study of American Capitalism at George Mason University. Talked to him about this issue. Dr. Matt began the interview by asking if Uber and Lyft are really making a dent in the public transit economy. Um, yeah, you know, the evidence is uh, that they are. Of course, they're cutting into traditional um, private transit as well, and, and I sh- should put private transit in quotes, because a lot of the private options like taxis are highly regulated by government in a way that mm, essentially true. has given taxis monopolies for, for decades. But um, yeah, the latest estimates on the private side is that Uber uh, outnumbers um, taxis three to one in New York, for example. Um, in um, where I'm located in D.C., the um, Metro, the public metro ridership is way down since the uh, advent of Uber, um, and it also hasn't helped that they're undergoing a lot of track maintenance due to some safety problems, and so they've shut down lines for long periods of time. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, the evidence is that it's definitely cutting into both traditional uh, private um, transit and public transit. Now. In a way, uh, you know, I guess that's just that's business, right? That's how this goes. And we see, uh, you know, um, UPS, FedEx, they've cut into the postal service and they, in a way, do it in many areas better, faster. Um, So what would be the downside? Is there a downside to just turning it over to these privatized companies? UPS does a, a great job and as UPS and FedEx have been taking off, the postal service has been struggling. They've been needing more and more. Um, they've been needing more, more and more subsidies. They've been needing to raise prices of stamps. Remember, and that creates a, a lot of frustration and anger. How can it be that the UPS can't, uh, the postal service can't um, make a money when it's a monopoly? And one of the downsides, I guess, is if you turn over public transit. To these privatized companies, what what's the outcome going to be? Will everybody be served, and will they all be served the exact same way, with the exact same um, prices and the exact same fees and the exact same access? And so, in in a in a crazy, I guess, world, we believe that everything that's capitalized that where where we we just turn it over to the market economy, we think it's going to work. But there are certain things and there are certain uh, areas, for example, that I'm sure a UPS would rather not serve because they lose so much money serving that area. But to be a company that is full service, you have to be willing to go full service. Are there certain communities that they're not going to make enough money to to have – you know, an Uber Lyft system there or a bus system or a, instead they need a bus system. So that's one of the great things that uh, Dr. Mitchell brought up in um, his article, Why Public Transit is Important. Hey, talk to us, uh, Dr. Mitchell. Then I was talking about the fact that um, these, these companies, they can make money and they're driven by making money. But in a way, it, because they're so money focused, they, they might not necessarily – 
go want to have people in on every route, but instead of just keeping the people on the highly profitable route. So, you know, the, the basic argument is, well, you know, we need to give you a monopoly and only if you have a monopoly can we can we force you to provide services to low-income areas. Um, the problem is when you look at the data and examples of deregulation, it really just doesn't um, – this, this theory does not translate into reality. So, for example, uh, airline deregulation. People made this argument for years that we, we have to regulate airlines, give them a monopoly so that they can offer lower um, price services. But it turns out that after they deregulated airlines in the late 1970s, prices went way down. They're now adjusted for inflation about 45% lower than they were when they were deregulated. Wow. And um, more than half of this can be attributed to deregulation. Uh, Uber is another example. You know, the argument has always been, well, we have to have a, give taxis a monopoly, limit the supply of taxis so that they can serve underserved communities. Well, it turns out that Uber and Lyft are able to charge um, significantly less than taxis. The typical taxi, even now, after the entrance of Uber and Lyft, charges about 80% more, up to 80% more hmm. in some areas. And it's you know, in many cases, it's just a few dollars more, but it can be up to 80% more in, in underserved areas. So it makes a really big difference. Uh, you know, this, this argument is so-so in theory, but it, uh, I just don't think it really uh, applies to reality. So you don't have to give a monopoly. You can, you can let everybody into the game and let them compete, and Uber and, Monopo- and, Uber and um, Lyft organizations like that, they'll do it cheaper. Then, um, then is, there, is there a chance that if, if we just turned it over that you really wouldn't need public transit anymore? I think there's a possibility. I think the one area where I would say there might be a role is, um, you know, there are some communities that are more expensive to serve. Uh, the best example I can think of is disabled communities. Right. Um, you know, you may uh, equipping a vehicle to handle a disabled person is expensive. So the public can, sector can play a role there if we feel, you know, as a society that we need to make sure that there are options available for these these people. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the government has to provide the service. You know, typically monopolies provide, provide services at very low quality and higher prices than they otherwise would be. So the best way to do it, I would say, is to offer vouchers for um, uh, or offer subsidies, essentially, to, but, but have it be directed to the consumer. So the consumer can take their, um, you know, a, a disabled person could have a card it essentially gives them a subsidy uh, if they are eligible for it. And they can use that on a wheelchair-equipped vehicle um, that can be privately provided. So essentially the subsidy is on the demand side, not on the supply side where the government takes an active role in providing the service. You know, that's a, it's an interesting idea. When I was uh, younger, I worked on an ambulance service here in Salt Lake City, and Many times, um, certain certain populations would actually call the ambulance to come take them to their doctor appointment, uh, and yeah. so you'd show up with, you know, a team in an ambulance that's charging hourly for and transport fees, and it was wow. you know eight hundred dollars or seven hundred dollars to get somebody to go do a med check. Um, and that very same company also realized this was going on, so they created more of like a van service. And the van service, I can just see perfectly how that would work under a, you know, just you you get a you get a 
certificate. You get something that you can exchange, and instead of it being a $500 cost, it's a $80 cost. Yeah, that's right. And you know, and the benefit of that is that it's open-ended. Yep. So a lot of government services end up being really inflexible. So, I mean, look at the taxi, really, from uh, 1930s when taxis first started appearing to um, – you know, now in the uh, 21st century, the technology has not changed one bit. Right. But in just five or six years, ride-sharing firms have totally revolutionized the technology of transportation. Um, and, of course, um, uh, streetcars or um, major subway systems and other kinds of uh, public transit are even less flexible. Right. Um, so really, the, you know, the real – Economists talk a lot about competition as being important for driving down prices, and I don't want to um, dismiss that argument. But real competition is dynamic competition, where it's not just about prices, but it's about changing the product. It's about offering a different array of services. It's about employing new technologies and challenging old business models. Mm. That's really what, what part of, you know dynamic competition is. Well, and one of the things you, you brought up as well in your article was the fact that um, – this innovation – I mean Uber may not drive somebody all the way from the suburbs to the city. They they may just drive you from the suburbs to the train station. So those are shorter yeah, drives, right. shorter runs and faster, more efficient to your door kind of thing. Um, and then the you know you can still have the public transport, transit take you in on the train. That's right. And, you know, and there's a lot of interesting things that technology is now able to do where you can – uh, they can see, all right, this is the areas in which people are demanding services. This is the area mm. in which, you, you know, the routes are going. So now they're, they're offering, um, ride-sharing firms are offering things like Uber Pool, where you can, um, they, they have you share a car with five, four or five other passengers, or, right. or maybe even just one other passenger, and you can really cut the, the per-passenger price um, and you, you're being more efficient. You know, it's a lower uh, carbon footprint. You know, it's it's beneficial on a number of different margins. And and that that also takes money, right? I mean, you got to buy vans. You got so. Do we want our public transit? I mean, in Utah, you can get pool vans and check them out from the public utility and and do that on your own, even. But then again, you, it's the government that has to buy the machines and the equipment and all the technology to make it happen versus allowing the market maybe to do it. We're speaking with Dr. Matt Mitchell, and he's walking us through, uh, I think, a really important discussion. We've also been talking about monopolies. And, uh, you know, when it when it, we think that we need to give a monopoly to to get full service, and uh, and yet it doesn't necessarily pay out uh, the same way economically. Is that is that pretty accurate, Dr. Mitchell? Yeah, I'd say, you know, of course... Um Nobody ever, no monopolist ever says you need to give me a monopoly right. just because, uh, you know, I want the money. Um, so they almost, they, they always come up with rationales. And one of the more popular rationales is this idea that, hey, look, if you give me a monopoly, then I will do whatever you want. You know, I'll serve underserved communities or I'll charge lower prices. Um, and so this becomes a very popular argument. But every so often you get, um, private companies that are willing to challenge. Um, you know, a good example, you were talking about um, uh, UPS and FedEx. Yeah. Um, back in the 19th century, there's a famous abolitionist um, philosopher named Lysander Spooner that challenged 
the postal monopoly. And um, he managed to deliver mail faster. He managed to deliver mail cheaper than the U.S. evenings. He was run out of business. Oh, really? So, yeah. so yeah. He, he challenged the postal service, uh, and then in his in his challenge, he couldn't keep up with it. He was he didn't make he didn't make it work. Yeah, they essentially regulated him out regulated him out of business. And the same thing has happened in transportation as well. Um, Back in the 1914, um, uh, a man picked up um, a rider uh, and charged him a nickel and offered to drive him across across town in in L.A. Um, And this started a national trend called um, jitneys. The the name for for a nickel at the time was a jitney. And so basically it was sort of a 1914 version of Uber where people were driving, uh, you know, strangers across across town for you know very cheap uh and for their service for for this uh you know service uh, they were rewarded by being driven out of town by um the the public transportation systems and also the private transportation systems that lobbied government in order to wow. say you you got to run these people out of town well yeah you got to protect your you got to protect your monopoly i mean even right. even the whole uh and whether it's all accurate or not but the experience the the uber driver experience versus just getting in a cab experience is different for many um is there and even the public transit and public transit we laugh at because of other reasons and the people you meet on the bus or the public transit system is is there is there a um can can public work with and and even compete with private and win. Mm. So, I mean, certainly public can compete with private and it has an, a major advantage, which is that it typically is, is highly subsidized. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, interestingly enough, actually, quite often when they do compete head to head, private still wins. Uh, you know, a great example of this is uh, – Back in the in the 19th century, um, there was a monopoly given to um, people who were ferrying folks across uh, the waters in New York City, and it was given to Robert Fulton, actually, who was mm. one of the first inventors of the steam steamboat. Um, and uh, eventually, it, that that monopoly was challenged by a young man named Cornelius Vanderbilt. He was nobody at the time; huh. he wasn't the richest man in the world yet, um, and. Uh, he challenged it, went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court actually said this was unconstitutional. You've got to let Vanderbilt uh, compete. And sure enough, within uh, weeks of open competition, Vanderbilt was able to undercut the prices of this monopolist by um, – they had been charging $7, and he was able to charge 3 So it was much, much lower. Hmm. So often when you open it up to competition – uh, private firms are able to outcompete public firms, even sometimes when those private when those public firms are subsidized. Um, and Vanderbilt ran up against a number of public, of subsidized um, firms, and he still managed to beat them and charge lower prices. Would um, is there any other? I know some arguments have been made that uh, there is something that happens when you hand your money over to a company, Uber. You may not feel as big of a connection or a responsibility, an obligation to community. I've seen this argument before, um, and uh, I think it's a rather romantic view, I suppose, <laughs> of, of government. You know, it's the idea that, you know, somehow we have this deep connection as a bond when we vote uh, together when we vote on things. But um, 
you know, in a lot of ways, I think that overestimates the degree to which you are connected to your government. I mean, when you pass a vote, um, there's a number of limitations there, of course. One thing is you're, you're having to vote on a whole bundle of things. You know, you're choosing at the same time that you're choosing a public transportation system, you're also choosing how much we're going to spend on, um, you know, welfare benefits, on, on um, sewers, on um, public pools, on all those things. You know, imagine if you were had to buy a car, you also had to buy it alongside, you know, purchases of your home and your food and your clothing. You know, you had to buy it all as a bundle. You're really not going to be able to exercise much control over it. Hmm. Um, you know, and public decisions are also often, you know, not very competitive. They're not very competitive markets. You typically have two choices, two right. choices. Um, and I think this romantic view of government way um, – overestimates the individual's power and underestimates the power of concentrated special interests. You know, the truth is that businesses that stand to gain from monopoly, government-granted monopolies or government subsidies, they tend, they have a really strong um, incentive to organize and put pressure on government. And we, who would pay the price for that, consumers and taxpayers, we're very diffuse and numerous, and we're just not as well organized, and so we typically don't exercise as much control over government. So I just think that's a that's a um, sort of a simplistic, uh, yeah. romantic view of government. Matt, I appreciate it. This has uh, been very eye-opening. Dr. Matt Mitchell's his name, and he, uh, again, is a senior research fellow and director of the Project for the Study of American Capitalism at George Mason University. We will take a break, my friends. Come back and uh, continue the discussion right here at the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. The coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, isn't it interesting that uh, leadership experts, as they're studying leadership, they're they're now talking about the need for radical inclusion. We need more and more ideas. We need to allow more people in on the conversation. Maybe draw bigger circles so that we can we can kind of all fit in this together. Um, I I've been uh, seeing this same kind of movement going on where. I always I always I don't know what I if it's a joke, but I'm always saying, you know, we're one we're one disaster away from a a very big problem. We're one disaster away from totally needing each other. Right. And we see that when we have a kind of a local tragedy or uh, even when you just see someone in your neighborhood that's uh, been diagnosed with cancer, people gather around and and they take care of it in an address. um, at the Vatican recently, uh, Pope Francis, this was, uh, I think, about maybe within the last year, Pope Francis spoke out strongly against what he called the terrorism of gossip. And gossip to me is the opposite of that coming together, that, that, uh, that you know, belonging sense that we feel when we are together uh, fighting for the same cause. Gossip, I think, is something that actually tears us away from that. And so one of the things I wanted to focus on in our Coach's Corner today is talking about how we can we can really learn to love our neighbor, 
lose some of those little habits, the techniques we have of pushing our neighbors away, and one of those would be to to kind of lose the gossip. Let's let's set a goal, all of us, following the you know the admonition of Pope Francis about the the gossip, the terrorism of gossip, and learn to control our tongues. Uh, maybe what we could do is just simply, especially with our own kids, our own family, say that we we're going to do whatever we can. To, uh, to eliminate gossip from our house. We won't talk about other people in negative light. We instead will, as our last guest taught us, amplify, uh, amplify the positive, amplify the things that we see that are good out in the world. And maybe part of what we could do is try to actually just start to have conversations around the dinner table, conversations around home about the positive things that we saw. What were the good things we saw people do today? And ask, ask our kids to share those examples. In fact, more importantly, ask them to be those examples. Wouldn't it be interesting if we were all would go home every day and talk with our spouse and our kids about the good things that happened today and the people that influenced your life for good today? I wonder, I wonder if your name would be mentioned by the people around you. Would, would your acts today be so impactful that you would make their list of people that that made a difference, of people that really, truly um, have have helped. So that's one idea. Another idea is we, we can learn to humanize the people around us also. We don't have to demonize everybody. Everybody doesn't have to be the spawn of darkness, slowly trying to destroy your life. Sometimes people just drive slow. Sometimes they just cut in front of you. Sometimes people just... You know, they're humans. And if we could actually start to see people more as humans, and one way to do this um, is just, you know, think about why you would do a similar thing. Well, I would never pull in front of somebody. I always check my mirror. Yeah, except for that time you didn't, right? And then you did pull in front of someone. And so if I followed you long enough, I call it the Ken Starr defense. Remember, Ken Starr was investigating uh the uh, the white water and all of the President Clinton, you know, stuff. And uh, as he was investigating, if you know, if I put millions and millions of dollars behind an investigation team to follow you for a year, what would we find? And I'm going to bet we'd find some problems. You know, you're kind of a bad neighbor. Sometimes you drive on their sprinkler accidentally as you're pulling your car out backwards. Be careful to, to uh, demonize somebody. And the only reason we do it is because it's easy. But the minute we are demonizing everybody around us, we, we really are tightening in the circle, and it's going to cause and create even more problems for us. Another um, idea is to literally lift your neighbor like you lift yourself. We're really good at writing great stories about how we live, how we work, how blessed we are, how gifted, how we've touched the hand of God kind of thing that— Sure, our talents are incredible. We're really good at that. And then we kind of lower everyone else's story. One of the things we might want to start doing is lifting stories. Build better stories about other people. Hold up what they do really well. Share more stories about the good of others. And and literally help them write a better story. You might even know people that are really they're they're very adept and skilled at at not telling very good stories about themselves. And they need more help. They need, they need to know how to do it. They need better examples of better stories. So nothing is more powerful than when you're talking to somebody and you highlight what's great about them. Sometimes they look at you like, are you seriously being this positive about me? 
<laughs> they can't believe it. So, uh, I, you know, it's it's not easy, but build those stories up. There's nothing better, I think, than hearing something positive about you from somebody that heard it from someone else. You know? That means it's getting out there. People think you're great. So be loyal to those people that aren't around you and be positive and, and lift them up. And uh, and I think if we do that, we, we end up lifting everybody up. One other little tool I would just suggest uh, to hopefully create a, a more lifting neighbor kind of relationship is eliminate the middleman. Quit taking your grievances to someone else. Let's start going directly to the person. And it might simply be our fear that we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do it without causing a scene. We don't know how they will respond. But instead of being more passive-aggressive, why don't we just be a neighbor? Instead of gossiping to air our grievances, why don't we just go talk to the person and find out what's going on? And uh, don't even just get mean about it. I know people that set up garbage cans in front of their house because they don't want anyone to park in front of their house. And, okay, fine, fine. But come on, let's just talk about it. Let's just talk. It's, it's, it's an old thing we used to do before all this technology came around. We used to just kind of talk to each other. And I know it. it's hard. It's not easy. But it's just what's right. That's what we do to be a healthy adult. We talk. Anyway, just a few simple, simple solutions to uh, lift one another and be a better neighbor and create, hopefully, a better, a better culture and a better life for all of us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, earlier in the program, we revisited a portion of an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Kim Giles, who is the president and co-founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching. And it was uh, in regards to the benefits of a negative attitude. And we want to continue a portion of that interview. And uh, Dr. Matt began the interview by asking if we should share with others how miserable we are. Maybe psychologists have have given sharing your emotion a bad rap that it's always healthy. Yeah. And and I find for a lot of people, really talking about all the negative emotion, at some level, this could be helping you process. But at another level, it could be just making it bigger right. and wallowing in it and spreading your misery <laughs> around with yeah. other people. And I mentioned to you, one of my favorite books is called Letting Go, The Pathway to Surrender by mm-hmm. David Hawkins. And he says there's three things we generally do with emotion when we feel it, whether it's anger or sadness, whatever emotion, we either suppress them yeah. or we kind of stuff it. And that's definitely not healthy. We express it and we talk about it, but possibly too much and give power to it and make it bigger. Or we try to escape from it and distract ourselves basically from it. And Obviously, if you're dealing with something like grief, I have a friend that lost a child recently. Mm. And obviously, I mean, these are emotions that he he needs to feel and process and go through. But there are moments it makes sense for him to distract himself a little bit and be able to focus on other things. Right. Right. I mean, you need to. You've got you you don't want to just he couldn't get anything done. Right. 
And there's a time for expressing emotion and sharing how you feel. But also, if he spent all day expressing, Mm -hmm. it's blowing it up and and making it bigger, not necessarily healthy. So David Hawkins recommends another option that's process the emotion. And so we are going to think it through. And sometimes it does help to process with someone. Sure. But it's different than just expressing I think expressing yeah. is really wall- wallowing. Well, in communication theory, we always say that uh, you make things real by creating meaning around them. So the more you talk about something, the more you're actually generating a meaning for it. Even if the meaning's not accurate, it it's feels like feel it is. Accurate. And so sometimes talking about things, if you're going to create meaning that's really negative and not accurate, may not be healthy. Okay, so our goal yeah. is we've got to process it in an accurate yeah. way where we can kind of step back from it. That's why some fighting doesn't work because you're, it's not going to create a healthier You're not getting anywhere positive. Right. Let's just figure out what's really going on. Then let's maybe process it or sure. communicate it. So uh, I, this happened to me a while back. I got pulled over by you the did. police for running a stop sign. Yeah. And I've I was there, angry. That. I thought I stopped, and I maybe didn't stop the full three seconds, but I thought I stopped, and and I sat there in the car, and I was seething Mm. with anger towards this cop. (laughs) So I thought, this is a perfect example. I can call all my friends and complain and express how I feel, or I could process it. And so these are kind of some of my steps. First, take some time and sit with it. Just Just sit with it. notice what you're feeling. And I remember sitting there going, this amount of anger is, it's interesting that I could be this. I'm not a really angry person, but I am, woo, feel how strong this is. And then my next question is, what could I be feeling this for? Hmm. Is it serving me in any way? Could it teach me anything useful to have this human experience to feel this? And I... What came to mind is that we've been seeing on the news um, a lot of people angry at the police for bad treatment. Right. And, you know, I have an African-American yeah. daughter, so we're kind of close You're to this. You're feeling that, sure. And I sat there and realized if I was African-American and was pulled over more often and I'm this and angry now, this imagine how angry mm. I can understand how angry they would be. This experience yeah. let me have the opportunity to understand that at a different level. And I really believe life is a classroom and every experience is here to teach us something. So this emotion you're feeling, whatever it is, it's a lesson. It's here to teach you something. Yeah, whether so, you want it or not. So do you think that's I, I a think good that's huge. First I think it's step? brilliant, totally. What could it teach me? Um, I also look at what's behind it. What am I afraid of? Yeah, what's the deeper thing here? I believe everything we're feeling is triggering a fear. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was fear of loss. I think it was loss of money, loss yeah. of time that made me feel like I was being robbed by this policeman. Sure. Yeah. And or, so, or just that they're making you like you're a spectacle. Oh, everybody driving by was watching. It could have <laughs> like, triggered my fear of yeah, looking bad. Uh-huh. That's interesting. So when you can recognize the fear that's behind it, you can also step back and realize, okay, really, this isn't that big of a deal. What people think of me doesn't really matter. We can process our way through the fear because most fears are so irrational. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't need to go there. But that's a great thing. Just how is it serving me? Is something going on? What's the deeper trigger here? Yeah. That's good. Now, one of the many free things on my website, I've got a little ebook on processing emotions that actually has this information. 
And in it are some charts, levels of consciousness charts that David Hawkins first kind of came up with. Yeah. But what's interesting is you look at whatever emotion you're having right now and you can find it on the chart and all the emotions on the bottom are the, the fear-based ones with the very worst being shame. Huh, right. And then up to the top, the very highest would be love. And you can see where you're falling right now. Oh, and it shows you how ha- how much happiness you are capable of at that place. Because you're limited, right, by this oh, yeah. feeling. Shame, you're not feeling very much happiness. Um, anger and, and hate towards somebody is pretty low yeah. on the happiness scale. Right. So I look up and I look at some other options because in every moment you have other options. Absolutely. So I could choose gratitude right now. That we have a police force that protects us. They do their job. Her pulling over people who run stop signs at some level is going to make me safer. I could choose gratitude. And one, two seconds later, I can be out of that emotion and be feeling something different as soon as I recognize I have other Mm -hmm. choices. But you might even then bounce back to it. To wallow again. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> yes. you'll, you'll bounce back in, in, in and out of it, won't you? Yeah, the fear will creep back in right. and you'll start being bugged. Well, like when you get the ticket and you got to pay have for to it. Pay it. Oh, here we go again. <sighs> I know. But it's a choice. That's what you're saying is make a choice. And you may not be, it's not, again, people are all like, but I can't be perfect at that. Well, don't be. Then just be just kind practice. of good at it. Well, life just, is a classroom. Yeah. We're here to practice and learn. Yeah. And even my friend who, who lost their child, this has been an amazing growth opportunity to notice all day, every day, that our emotions are something we can choose. Hmm. We can process them in a healthy way or an unhealthy way, and we determine how miserable we're going to be today. So true. That is great advice. Give us one more for the road. What else What else can we do to, to process and keep processing? Uh, because this doesn't see. go away, and it doesn't <laughs> end with one you know idea. I mean, this is a process that will go on forever and ever and ever. I mean, you'll so, get pulled over again. Absolutely. I had a client recently who got this little app that's supposed to help you um, sleep better. Mm-hmm. And every morning it asks you, well, what's your attitude? What's your mood waking up this morning? And you enter smiley face <laughs> or frowny face or whatever your mood. And she realized it's a choice. You know, uh, interesting. I never looked at it that way, that there are benefits from from having a negative attitude, but there you go. Anyway, we, we have a couple of minutes left before we go to the BBC News, and we just wanted to share one quick MT News story with you here. Um, and this is something that you can help out with. Well, I, really, if you're in Pennsylvania, you can help out with it. But, but, but Pennsylvania police are looking, are looking to identify a man who stole 20 containers of crab meat worth $589. According to the news release, the man entered the supermarket on March 16th around 10 p.m. and hid the crab meat in his jacket before leaving the scene in a tan Ford F-150. See, now that seems smart, to hide it in your jacket. your jacket. Because you don't want to say, like, Oh, you're looking like you're putting on a few pounds. You don't want to offend somebody. Right. Maybe that's why he did it. At least he didn't stick it in his pants like most of these guys do, right? I was just thinking, wasn't it just last week somebody was trying to do the same thing? Right. In a way, I wish he would have put it in his pants because it would have gone so perfectly with one of our favorite game shows that we have. 
there's a new game show that's setting out to answer the question... Will it fit? On Will It Fit, contestants try and squeeze various groceries into their pants. Items like a 20-pound bag of ice, a case of dog food, and a pineapple. Will it break? Will it hurt? And most importantly... Will it fit? Coming soon to BGC. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away. We, of course, have Terry South, our wonderful producer. And we have Becca Hurley, who's just killing it on the board over there. Uh, so we got people filling in for other people, and I'd say it's going swimmingly, wouldn't you? I would. It's just a nice reminder that in the end, we're all so replaceable. <laughs> well, that's wow. kind of a it's kind of a dark thought. It's a downer, yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> um. Wow. Okay. Good morning. <laughs> hey, I'm curious to know: Do your kids? Believe in the Easter Bunny. Oh yeah, Jerry. They do. Yeah, they're very concerned. Unless I was in San Diego over the weekend, and they're like, how's the Easter Bunny going to find us? Yeah, I said I'm not sure how it works, but I'm thinking he'll be okay. The Easter Bunny will find you. There's no question about the bunny coming up with eggs. Yeah, somehow. Yeah. There's no question how that works. It's just the fact that is it going to happen? Yeah. Will the Easter Bunny find us? See now. Santa has a sleigh. I wonder what form of transport does he just hop from home to home? I don't know. I don't know. It's a lot of hopping. These are questions that I wish we had answers to. And then the puzzling thing, he found us. That's true. We're in some random hotel room. Wake up. Easter has like exploded all over the room. It was and, crazy. And how do you guys repay him for delivering eggs to your hotel room? You beat the heck out of the, him with a stick. <laughs> you show up to the family Easter party and there's a pinata and it's an Easter bunny. And we're like, really? We're going to hit the Easter bunny? All right. Wow. Thanks, Easter bunny. Now, would you put on this blindfold, please? <laughs> and uh, try not to move around so much. Yeah. That'd be great. Anyway, that's so cool, though, that you guys still celebrated Easter in a hotel room. Good yeah. for you. That's good parenting right there. Is it? Well, maybe not the beating part. But, no, but I yeah. think I think everyone had a good time and uh, got their fill of candy. Yeah. And uh, I'd recommend the Starburst jelly beans. They're a good flavor. Is that flavor. because they, they rattle when you shake the egg? Well, that's that's a good, a good you know, you need that in the egg to know something's in there. Yeah. Right? So, but they I are like, the best. The flavor of the Starburst jelly bean is so good. Now- Versus but, your traditional, which sometimes tastes like medicine. But the rattle is nice. I mean, it's it's uh, it's nice to hear that and feel that. But sometimes, what if it's like so jam packed hmm. that there's no rattle? Well, then that's you need also to, good. you need to take some out because you don't want the you want the <laughs> rattle. You and that, they're all plastic eggs too, right? Sure. So you're you need to kind of think about what kind of a, a process do you want? Do you want the kid to pick it up and shake it and go, "Ooh, there's something in there," or to be puzzled because there's no sound whatsoever? This is going back to that parent tax on candy. And then there's the parent yeah. tax. He was mad. I, I took like a Twix or something. He goes, hey, that's mine. And I went, parent tax. Yeah. And he's like, 
what? And I go, I need good earners. Go find more candy. <laughs> you went, wow. Yeah. Let me explain something to you. Twix, those, those aren't meant for kids. No. Yeah. Or at least the one I ate wasn't. Sure. Yeah. But I didn't it, even get that. No chocolate for me. Uh, well. Anyway. You ter- can make those, like I said, you can make those purchases. I know you want one delivered by the bunny himself, <laughs> but you can go to a store. They you probably know, still have them today on discount. You know, it's funny. We found a recipe for a copycat uh, Twix bar. You can just make it at home. Wow. We were really excited. We made it. Sure enough, tasted exactly like a Twix bar. Then we did the math, and I think we would have saved money just buying the Twix bar. Oh, yeah. I think we spent more money trying to make it ourselves and more time. Anyway, what else is going on in the world, Terry? Demanding an increase in pay and funding for schools. Thousands of teachers in Kentucky and Oklahoma spent Monday on strike. With many attending demonstrations in front of their state capitals, uh, many teachers participating, with so many uh, uh, teachers participating that every public school in Kentucky was closed, as were most in Oklahoma. At the uh, Oklahoma protest, the National Education Association spokesperson told NBC News that the teachers are fed up with having to use outdated textbooks and making kids sit in broken desks. See, in college, they would have a, a new textbook every semester. Right. Go buy it. Yeah. Yeah. This is different when you start handing out a book that's one 10 to 15 years old and then held together with duct tape. Uh, they, the quote is, uh, this wasn't caused by a natural disaster. She said this is a man-made crisis mm. as governments have tried to lower taxes, shrink government. That's a good point. That lowers the level of education sure. that can be uh, provided, I guess. Last month, the Oklahoma State Legislature voted to increase taxes on cigarettes, fuel, and oil and gas production with the money going to the first pay raise for teachers in a decade uh, i don't believe that it was a raise enough yeah when you haven't been you haven't got a raise in a decade it's like there there's some ground that needs to be covered to get to the point where you've just met the the rise in inflation hey, right what, so what were the gas prices when you were there in california like 350 a gallon are you serious yeah I was shocked just here in Utah County seeing it for two seventy five. I I didn't even know when that happened. Yeah, just crazy. Kinda, but yeah, it was rather expensive there. Yeah. So maybe maybe just raise taxes on gases to get to California levels in Oklahoma, and you can pay for education. There you go. Except then all the teachers get paid, but then they have to go buy gas. That's another good point. So just their the raise gets pay them in gas cards. Up in the taxes I guess to get to, I don't know. No, that weird. would be horrible. Uh, on Monday morning, uh, Governor Mary Fallon said that the the state of uh, this would be Oklahoma said the state can't take away funding for other services to boost education. So there seems to be an impasse on where the funding will come from. But mm. the teachers are like they're out today. Also, are on strike again. So we'll see how long this goes. Before someone gives in, I guess. Uh, The Department of Justice has told federal immigration judges that in order to receive a satisfactory job performance evaluation, they must clear 700 cases a year. Hmm. This out of the Wall Street Journal. The new quotas were announced in a memo sent out Friday and will go into effect when the next fiscal year starts October 1st. There are more than 600,000 cases pending before the Executive Office of Immigration Review. And Attorney General Jeff Sessions wants to clear the backlog in order to speed up deportations. A Justice Department spokesperson said that over the past five years, the average judge completes 678 cases, although some judges were able to clear as many as 1,500 cases. Hmm. So they want everyone to hit that 700 case a year mark so we can speed up the deportation process. Ooh. I wonder, ooh, gosh, is yeah. that a good idea? 
Uh, if they need to be deported, sure. Yeah. If they're just sitting there in a in a, in a lot a lot, I think the bigger issue is they're sitting in in a prison cell somewhere yeah. or a holding cell indefinitely until they go to court. And if there's a huge backlog, then the whole system just kind of grinds to a halt. Mm. So maybe this is just about efficiency. Okay. Not sure. The pr- percentage of K through 12 public schools that prohibit cell phone use was about 66% in 2015, 2016, that school year. So it was about 66% said no cell phones. No cell phones. Yeah. That was down from the more than 90% in the 2009-2010 school year. Huh. So 2009-2010, 90% of schools, no phones. We don't need them. By 2015, 2016, that was down to 66. So there's a, kind of a slide where, okay, we'll accept cell phones or they're using them more, it looks like. This is according to data from a survey conducted by the National Center for Education Statistics. Among the high schools, the shift over the same period was especially striking, dropping from 80% in 2010 to 35% in 2016. Everybody that they're chatting with is at the school there with them. Well, it's not necessarily they're just playing with their phone. I think schools are using them during coursework. Really? That's what they're saying. Oh. The nation's largest school system, New York City, is among those that have abandoned strict bans, which had some students paying a dollar a day to store phones in specialty specialty trucks that were parked nearby before heading into school. Hey, maybe that's how these schools get more money. If you want to bring your phone to school, you have to pay X number of dollars per day. Then there's the parents. They want to get a hold of their kids somehow. Just call the office. Yeah, that doesn't work so well. We, we do it now, and they're, like, confused as to why we're calling. I go, I need to get a message to my son. What? I'm like, he's it's six. So easy. I don't have, he doesn't have a cell phone. I'm not going to text him. Come it on. worked back when we were in school. Yeah, it did. But it this can is, work again. Th- this is a different different time. No, it's just We've an excuse. moved on. Everyone wants more access to their children during the day. Just charge them to bring their phones. I'm the parent. You're the school. You don't tell me how to do things. That's how the relationship goes so and then there are places where you'll load an app and then you have instruction and you can access it from your tablet or phone or whatever the kid has Hmm. i've heard schools doing that too if every kid in the class has a phone let's use it okay or just they all have the the old-fashioned way schools have wi-fi i mean they're all capable of doing these sort of things the problem is of course it's a distraction yep so how do you do that i don't know and then bullying and all this other stuff that happens with the social media now, if they're playing, say, Fortnite in between classes, <laughs> ah, what can you do? Uh, finally, Aaron Boone woke up before headed to the ballpark for his first home opener as a New York Yankee, as the manager, and uh, peeked out his window and went, what? He recalled saying to himself, it's really 100% chance of snow at 7 a.m.? Two hours later, the Yankees postponed Monday's game against the Tampa Bay Rays That's and right. rescheduled it for 4.05 uh, Eastern today. Uh, the snowstorm is the fifth to move through the area uh, after four nor'easters in March. The decision to start later in the day Tuesday was made because rain is forecast for the morning there in New York. So baseball home opener in New York postponed because of snow. Well, that's too bad. You think there was there was several years ago where there were several home openers in Detroit and Chicago, just snow. It was a, a late winter like we're having now. You know, they should just, it should be like golf where you play it where it lies type oh, wow. of mentality. You want baseball just to, just to play. Don't you think people would be so much more interested in going to a baseball game if there was that added weather element to it of no. snow? Really? Do you want to sit in the snow and it's freezing? We want you to slide into second I mean, on, on a sled. I'll watch it on TV. I don't want to 
yeah. go to it. I he, might actually dress up to watch baseball being played in two feet of snow. There you go. Eh, Got to shovel the base paths. Hmm. But I'm from Minnesota, so maybe that's just a thing we do <laughs> <Yeah>. anyway. <laughs> You're used to it. Anyway, we talked a little earlier about some of these candies that we may or may not have indulged in over the weekend, what with Easter and all. Um, But uh, when we return, we're going to be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Margaret Marshall. And she's going to be sharing with us the cost of eating healthy when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. healthy is an essential part of any effort to become healthier or lose weight. According to a study by the Overseas Development Institute, prices for healthier foods have been rising. A few months back, uh, Matt Townsend spoke with Margaret Marshall, a wellness consultant, about her article, Is Eating Healthy Really More Expensive? Dr. Matt began the interview by asking, does healthier food cost more You know, you had just read the uh, study that you saw, and that is mind-boggling, really. I don't know. I I, I don't know if you said that was from 2009 or since 2009. Yeah, I think since 2009. Five. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just since since about probably uh, uh, through 2009, and then from 2009 on, when those numbers came out. It's dropping. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Um, That's pretty sad. No, totally. Sad. So if people are not buying fresh produce, where are they spending their money? You know, that's, I think, what every shopper and family has to ask themselves. What's in my shopping cart? Where's my money going? And is it being well spent on the health of myself and my family? And, you know, it's it's funny. I had written this article for Huffington Post right after I had done a seminar. And once again, I heard someone from a seminar or you know, say, have you seen the price of lettuce lately? Or have you, you know, the price of bananas is so high. And I always say, when people say that to me, what's the, what's the price tag on your favorite box of cookies? And right. they never have an answer. <laughs> never look. Yeah. They never look. And, and I find that, and in that moment, that's a reality check for them because they'll complain about the price of of uh, fresh produce because if it's not seasonal, what they're buying is not seasonal, but they'll continue to buy boxes of food that has no nutritional value in it whatsoever. The price on that continues to rise, and not only is the price rising on those foods, the quantity in the boxes are getting smaller and smaller. So, you know, they're just not thinking things through clearly. That's what your article does, is it answers... I mean, what's the cost, sure, of of everything else you're doing? And, I mean, it all adds up one way or another. You're going to spend money either in the doctor's office or at Weight Watchers or, you know, in the produce section. Right, right. Where are you going to spend it? Right. Correct. And, and, and what's really better for you? You know, if you if you feed your body with food that is going to give it the nutrients it needs and the vitamins it needs and give you the energy you need and the stamina to live a healthy lifestyle, well, then you're not going to be spending money at as much money in the doctor's office and at pharmacy. 
agencies and in weight loss programs, which is a $60 billion industry. Wow. So explain that. Right. You know, explain why the weight loss field is a $60 billion industry and people are worried about their lettuce being a dollar higher than it was last week. Is It, it seems like it's an excuse, right? And I mean, like I know with me, if the vegetables are there and they're in front of me and I'll eat them. It's but my idea is then I hear about McDonald's trying to do some garlic fries and I think okay. well I got to drive out of my way to get those. Is it's, that right? It's it's this idea though uh that I guess we're lazy. Is it lazy if you're driving out of your way no. to get something is it lazy? No, yeah, no, it's or is it habit? I, I'm mo- or motivated, right? I'm more motivated to oh, go okay. try something than I am to to actually go, but I, I'll sit there and watch on Facebook somebody, I don't even know how it's in my feed, but I'll watch people cutting up vegetables and making vegetables look so beautiful in this meal. And I'm like, yeah, I should do that. And then I just flip and go to the next one. <laughs> and, and what stops you? It, well, I guess what stops me in the end is I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, I don't know. Okay. Even just going, my wife will say, can you go pick out some tomatoes? And I get to the produce section, and I'm like, I don't know how to judge a tomato. It's I feel awkward. So really, yeah. I if that's true for many people, I, I you know that very well could be. And again, it's all what you're accustomed to. Hmm. And you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking. I, I don't know about the the um, garlic fries. I don't even know about them. I don't. I'll, I'll let you know when I try them. They're not on my radar screen. Let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, but when Many people who eat sugary items, processed sugary items like cake and candy and ice cream, they find that fruit really has no taste because it's not as sweet as what they're accustomed to having. But once you realize that you cut out all that processed food, fruit has a fantastic taste. It's sweet enough, and the taste like will burst in your mouth. The flavor will burst in your mouth. But that's not going to happen if you're eating all that artificial sweetener or processed sugars. So the patterns are, are a big part of this. We have to look at our, our eating patterns because if I am overloading myself with sugar, I mean, and, I mean, if I'm drinking sugar all day, just oh all of a sudden, yeah, how could, a, how could a cherry taste distinct and special if you've been drinking cherry Coke all day? Right, right, right. How do you compare it? It all goes back to your patterns and your habits. You know, I'm just thinking... Also, what you just said about going and picking out tomatoes and not knowing um, how to do that. I I just had company about a week or so ago, and I entertain often, but I was making this recipe with avocados. And truthfully, I never bought an avocado in my life, Hmm. even though I know how good they are for you. It was just never in my pattern. So I went to buy this avocado, and I cut it up, and it was so easy (laughs) to do and tasted so delicious. But I said, why haven't I been doing this all along? Yeah. So now avocados is part of my weekly grocery shopping list. And Well, don't you think, Margaret, a lot of people, um, and we do it, where you get in this idea, this this moment in your head where you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. We're going to buy vegetables, and you buy the vegetables, and you don't, and we end up just seeing them disintegrating in our fridge. it's we. It's almost like we're motivated to do it, and then either maybe we don't know what we're doing, but it's as easy as that. You just have to almost force yourself to go get an avocado and ask the produce guy or gal how how do you pick up how you pick one, and then 
I mean, by the way, Google it. You can Google every one of these things and, and just try stuff. It just like you're saying, change the pattern. Change the pattern. Um, you know, it's interesting. I have, I have a story like that in my book, and I know you saw my Huffington Post on this, but I have almost 60 Huffington Posts out there, so I hope you read them all. By the way, and what, what's the best – do you have a website where we can go – I do have a website. It's margaretmarshallassociates.com. Right. And Marshall has two L's. It's, it's time for me to update my website, but all of my Huffington Posts are on there. Um, but my my thinking was I have, I have one Huffington Post. I cannot off the top of my head remember what I titled it, but the story is also in my book, or this theme is also in my book, Body, Mind, and Mouth, that people buy fresh produce when they go grocery shopping with the best of intentions. Hmm. But they also buy the cake and the cookies and the candies at the same time. So when they bring everything home at the end of the week, what have they eaten and what's getting thrown out? Yeah, all the cake's gone. The, the cookies cake, are the gone. They're gone. The sugar cereal's gone. The, the, you know, drinks, sugary drinks gone. Because once you start eating sugar, that's all you want. You want more and more sugar. You know? That's true. So for people who are throwing out their produce, and I have a whole Huffington Post on this idea. But, of course, I can't remember the title of it. People who are throwing out their fresh produce at the end of the week, they're either buying too much with good intentions, no sure. doubt, or they're eating food that is not nourishing them, and they're just eating too much of that. And they never get to the fresh produce because they have that, that taste in their mouth of, of sugar or fat, and they, you want to keep going for that once you start eating that. Talk about cost. Talk about expensive. If you're eating a bunch of food that doesn't actually nourish you and doesn't make you feel better and um, that's it's not healthy, then you're going to end up having to buy a lot more of it. So again, we're speaking with Margaret Marshall. If you go to her website, margaretmarshallassociates.com, and uh, your book, Body, Mind, and Mouth, Life's Eating Connection, um, that, I guess they could find that anywhere, huh? They can find that anywhere. Uh, they can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's on the shelves. It's in libraries. Great. Talk to us about uh, some tips. What are some things that we could do to find cost-efficient, healthy foods? Well, the first thing, and this is what I always tell my clients to do, and, and I ask them to practice it yearly, is to shop for what's seasonal. First of all, if you're going to buy fresh produce that's seasonable in your area, it, it's going to be more cost effective for you it's not going to be as costly and you got, it's going to have more nutrients in it because the longer a fresh item has to travel to your grocery shelf the less nutrients it will have in it so like i live in new york you know i, I wouldn't buy watermelon in in the winter although the grocery stores have it it's not as tasty and uh, it costs it's very expensive. But there are other fruits that I would buy in the winter. And the same is true with the summer. You know, I'd buy fruits in the summer. I'd certainly buy watermelon in the summer. But um, depending on where you live, look for what's local. And, again, you mentioned Google. I always have my clients Google what is local in their area and then go for that food, uh, fresh produce for that. They have a lot of farmer's markets. There's just local things. I mean, I'm assuming that's a great thing just get to your farmer's market farmer's markets will always be first of all the the best tasting fruit that you can get and here on long island we certainly have farms out on the east end of long island with farm stands all over the place and that is the best in my opinion the best uh, produce we can get i can't always get there so i do have to rely on on grocery stores Um, but if you have that in in where you're living 
ideal. That's just ideal. It seems like you have to almost broaden your palate a little bit because if all all your kids will eat are strawberries, then, yeah, you're going to pay a lot of money. Well, you know, it's really funny, Matt, because you keep bringing these items up. I have another... Another Huffington Post uh, that I wrote a long time ago is How to Satisfy Your Picky Eater. And one of the things I wrote in there is, you know, your kids are picky mainly because of what you're doing. Hmm. So always notice what you're doing and how you're eating because that is going to dictate what your kids are going to eat or not to eat. Yeah. Um, so if they're only eating strawberries, you know, think about what are you really bringing into the house and what are they trying that's so true. And I mean, the, the distance between a strawberry and a kiwi, very small. <laughs> and um, we just introduced kiwis to uh, our kids and they're like, what? Nirvana. They, they like loved it. it. Oh, wow. Look at that. Now, one of them had, you know, all the prickly hair on the outside of it all over his right. lips. But oh, we, we had to teach him that. But, um, How old are your children? Uh, I have uh, from 10 up to 22. Okay, so they're a little older, and so that, that's a great time to start building those taste buds, especially before they go off to college and right. start eating all the, uh, the food in the cafeteria on the college campus. If they're used to eat, eating nutritious food, they're going to be looking for that. Yeah, and, 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 they, and they, already, they already do. In fact, when, like when we go somewhere where there's a salad bar, you can see that they'll, they'll pick and take their favorite items. Um, it, what are some other tricks that you use to make sure that uh, you're, you're able to eat the veggies and the fruits and, and do it affordably? Well, you know what? It's, it's funny because people will say to me, you know, I, I, always, I have my five-finger food guide, and I, I lump, lump fruits and vegetables into one food group, and as many people do. And, and so when I do seminars or I work with clients, they always say it should be more vegetables, right, than fruit. Well, sure, in a perfect world, you should be eating more vegetables than fruit. But very often when I start working with people, they're not eating any of it. Right. They're not eating any vegetables. They're not eating any fruit. So if I can get them to eat the fruit first and then we can work on the vegetables, that's fine too. You know, it's just getting them into that produce aisle and getting them to look at different things, just as your family did with, with the kiwi. Walk down the produce aisle. Talk to the people who are working in the produce aisle. Ask them what just came in or, you know, what is this? I remember one time looking for spaghetti squash years mm. ago, the first yeah. time I was going to eat it. And I said to the produce manager, I said, what does it look like? <laughs> I didn't know. And um, you only have to ask once. After yeah. that, you know. And you you really only need two or three recipes of for you know for banana squash to make it a major part of your life really right right like I didn't know you could use it as pasta and all of a sudden spaghetti squash could be pasta wow spaghetti squash could be pasta or if you don't want it to be all your pasta mix it with pasta that's so that great you're not eating all of the pasta you know or um. You know, there's so many things you can do if you just take a step back. And first, ask other people, Google it, read about it. But take a step back and say, what is working for me? Because in, in my article here, and I truly, truly believe this, and I'm going to read it just as I wrote it, your eating affects everything from your health to your level of success. What you eat, what you choose to eat can dictate moods, relationships, and lifestyle. Hmm. And that is so true. And it may not, you may not see it in the day, but you will see it as the months and the years go on. You know, if, if, if you're in a profession 
um, and you're moving forward in your profession, and as the years go on and you're not eating well and you're not looking healthy and you're putting weight on and you're getting slower and your brain is not as sharp as it once was because you're feeding it a lot of sugar, when the promotions roll around, you're not going to be a candidate. So true. It's you know? so true. And they're not going to tell you that. Right. But you're not going to be a candidate. So that's going to hit you in the pocket as well. No, yeah. I mean, that's the point you make in the article is you're going to be hit in the pocket a variety of ways. It's not just at the store, but it's it might be in your job and your lack of promotion. But if you eat healthier foods and they're more nourishing for you, you'll eat less. You'll absolutely eat less because your body doesn't need as much. When you're eating foods that is giving, you know, your body will crave what it needs. But if you're giving it all the wrong food, that's the message you're getting from it now, and it wants to keep having it So because it's still looking for the nutrients it needs, and it's not getting it. So you want to keep eating and keep eating. So the food that you're buying that's not nourishing, you're eating more of. But when you nourish your food, your, your body, with good protein and good produce and, and healthy fats, you don't need to eat as much. Well, Margaret, we appreciate your time and your insight on this. Again, everybody, go check out her website, margaretmarshallassociates.com. Wonderful resources there, as well as all of those Huffington Post articles that you can read through. And, Margaret, we appreciate you. Thank you. It really is, when you think about it, folks, it's your life, right? And uh, we've we got to do something. We, we, you know, we can keep talking about your health, and there's a point where, where we really, we just, we need to just, get healthy or not you know you can just die just die no we we want to we want to do what we can stick with us this is the matt townsend show helping you live longer we'll be right back because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner welcome back friends you know what an interesting idea that uh you're going to leave california the bastion of not just beaches and surfers and a nice tan, but also you're going to leave the blue state, the headquarters of liberal values or whatever, and go to a red state? Can you imagine going to Utah or Indianapolis, the city, and all of a sudden you got to like basketball and Republic and Mike Pence? Come on. But uh, that, what uh, we just learned from Leah Singer is it actually it edified her. It made her better, and she realized that she can still have her views, and in a weird way, they actually have more power in another state than they do in California. You know, to be to be a Democrat in Indianapolis, uh, or to be a Democrat in Utah, or any other midwestern or uh, mountain west state, may actually have more power than it would. In any other state. So if we could just open up, as Leo was telling us, our minds a little bit more to learn how to, to you know, intermingle, to let more people into the, our circle, how powerful would that be? And by the way, how powerful for everyone else around you to have neighbors that they associate with that see things differently, that we are just so entrenched in our in our little group. So I wanted to give you some, some coaching tips um, on what I call lessons to learn. Um, when, when you're de- and, and to use when you're dealing and interacting with some of the most difficult people in your life. Um, every one of us comes across somebody. Uh, I see a lot of them when I'm coaching them in my office. 
that, you know, it's a lot of minor marriages. They just really cannot deal with their partner or, you know, the lady down the street or their mother-in-law or their father-in-law. So here are a few rules, I think, for all of us to, to better get along. Rule number one, let go of your childlike behaviors. There comes a point where if you want to be effective with somebody that's immature, you can't stoop to being immature. You have to stay above the fray. And if you do, guess what? It gives you more power. It gives you more moral authority if you don't slink down into the childlike behaviors. Name-calling is – that's why there's like a point where – when uh, when we're in this weird battle over who said what and who's doing what, sometimes it's better to just be quiet. And then if if you want to resign, leave, end it, divorce, do whatever, but don't stoop to being childlike. It's uh, it's a battle of uh, of the children on the playground, um, and the bully makes you become a bullier. We don't want to do that. So. We tend to believe that we as adults would naturally let go of these least effective scripts that we live, but a lot of us still believe that, you know, it's, it's got to be fair. It's got to be fair. So – and some of us want justice so bad that we will we'll stoop to a really childlike approach to gathering and gaining and, and getting our justice. So whatever you do, don't become broken because the person you're dealing with is broken. Don't stoop to their level. Another rule is get curious, not defensive about the differences. Uh, As we just learned from Leah Singer, moving from a blue state to a red state, instead of going to the the next state and starting out in a defensive posture, go get curious. It sounds like what she did is she started to explore, um, you know, race in Indiana. She realized that, man, that was a pretty powerful – they have a pretty powerful history in Indiana. Um, of of actually being involved in the underground uh, railroad and the underground groups that were trying to free slaves and get slaves to safer places. So how powerful would that mean to understand that? I, th- I think if you came to Utah, you might, in researching, you could dig down and find out that Utah was one of the first states to give women the right to vote, right? Which sounds like such a, what? I thought Mormons oppressed the women. <laughs> But at some point, uh, they were one of the first – they also organized one of the, the first and still largest uh, women's organizations called the Relief Society. Again, history exists in a lot of these places that none of us know anything about. And so when we get to our new area, we could – instead of immediately getting defensive, we could understand. Also, we probably ought to make sure that we remember that we're dealing with individuals, not just groups of people. Right. We when you go to a state that's a red state, you're dealing with still individuals. So one on one, you could get really curious as to what your neighbors think and why they think what they think and try to understand their story and allow their story to be there. Another rule that we can use is allow some stories to go untold. Some stories don't need to be brought up. Um, you know, I, I've noticed as a radio talk show host that many times I have guests that I'm interviewing, well, they'll be sharing a story or a principle that I connect with or that I may even have maybe even a better example than they do. And yet what I've noticed, too, is it's better sometimes for me to just bite my lip and not share my story. Sometimes I don't have to one up someone else's story. Sometimes I don't have to impose my version of the truth on other people. I can actually just allow it to be what it is. It, and by the way, there are also times stories need to be told. 
And many times some of us have been too afraid to share our story or it hasn't been safe enough to share the story. So some stories need to be untold and or not told and some need to be told more. And it might behoove all of us as a, as a cult, as a country to spend more time trying to figure out the difference there. Make it easier for some to tell their story. Make it maybe uh, more valuable for others that just hold back and don't always have to say everything that's on our mind. Another one we could do is start to uncover the holes um, – in our own story, in our own lives, instead of digging holes for others. Some of us feel like we have this need to push other people down to make sure that they're not succeeding because we're going to create the obstacles for them. And I see it all the time in couples that are arguing, you don't have to agree with each other, but you also don't have to disagree. It doesn't have to even be a point that we have to fight about. Why are we having to beat each other's ideas up? If your idea is so right – wouldn't it stand on its own, right? You don't have to put another person's idea down to make your idea better. Just let the two ideas stand. Um, another idea, another rule that I use when I'm coaching people is change all that you can to minimize the heat. Sometimes if you can take the heat off of the conversation, um, then then you know life will be better, right? Life can be a lot easier if, if we're not – if there's not as much friction, and so if you could sometimes ease the friction, take the take the, the thing that burns, the thing that bugs the most, and instead maybe let's deal with that at the very end, but let's go first to everything we can agree on. Let's go first where we do have a unified approach. And then um, interestingly, I found – once that once you do have you know a history once you kind of have momentum once you have trust with each other and you've and I that's easier to gain when we're not focusing on the hardest issues first then let's slowly bring in pieces of the hardest issue and start dealing with those and i've also just found allowing people to share their side of the story um, their version of what truth is sometimes eliminates some of the heat as well. Anyway, some basic ideas uh, to help us all deal with the people that are most difficult in our lives, the ones that we, we really disagree with the most. And uh, hopefully by doing that, you become better yourself because you're going to learn. You're going to learn. You're going to pick something up, for heaven's sakes. And uh, then you can have more power to influence down the road. That's the, that's the goal for all of us. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, and it's probably the best part of the show. Uh, well, it is It is a great part of the show. <laughs> They're going to give me grief for that, I know, because we're heading over to Jerem and Jason over at BYU Sports Nation to hear what is coming up on their program. How's it going, guys? What's up, Hefe? Hey, we missed talking to you guys. It was weird to see the uh, the studio empty yesterday. Why was it empty yesterday? Did it? Yeah. It, well, why was it empty yesterday? Well, because Matt was in St. George, mm. Terry was in SoCal, and my whereabouts are not important. <laughs> and you don't want to divulge anything. <laughs> it was just weird. You know, the the the, the studio was dark. It was. Do it. You guys do three hours every day. You know, we respect, do. I can respect that. You guys are here a long time. It's very rare that there's absolutely no show going on. Right. You guys, you guys rarely, rarely mail it in like yesterday. 
<laughs> that was wow. that was a a compliment. Was that a a backhanded compliment? It was a compliment. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Did you, you both made have, that up? Did, did and, you both and, have, I, and I gave you a compliment prior to that, so I set you up. That's true. No, you guys do a great job. You we, basically we told me that you you're you're broken without us here. Like you Listen, don't know how to function without us. It's yeah. not the same. We were in here Saturday. <laughs> Uh, Spencer and Jason were here yesterday. I see. I I was like you guys. I'm like I'm out yesterday. Um, <laughs> Sixty five bags of rubber mulch later. Uh, here I am. Sixty five bags. Yeah. That is insane. What? Yeah, I had a, a fun. I. Whoa. Okay. This Wait, is the music when, when we play. We... Whenever you. you guys say something heartfelt and emotional <laughs> about us. Thank you, Costco, <laughs> for sixty five bags of mulch. Wow. <laughs> I thought maybe it was like a loading candy. them on the side for me so I could put them into my car. I thought maybe it, like I it was a, a, a candy hangover or something. Yeah. I needed someone to minister to me with their truck. Hey, hey, mm. nice plug. Uh, we can talk about that later, though. <laughs> um, interesting. Hey, so did you hear that because of this pesky snow, this pesky nor'easter, mm-hmm. the New York Yankees couldn't have their regularly scheduled home opener? Yeah, there were quite a few, because of the weather, there were quite a few series that were postponed, yeah. And then John Sterling couldn't say, the Yankees win! (laughs) He was upset because he couldn't go with his Italian Giancarlo Stanton home run call. Oh, which is so bad. Hey, I I have an issue. What's that? Your Dodgers are really mean to Tuan Walker. Who? They are? They lit him up. They lit him up in the playoffs. He lasted one inning, and then yesterday, Jock Peterson goes... Yard in the first inning. Hmm. You got like you guys are just mean to Tuan Walker, former Mariner. Well, don't say you guys because I didn't really have anything to do with it. First you, of all, you, all you Dodgers and all the Dodgers. The Dodgers can't. They can't talk too much smack so far, right? They lost two out of three to the the San Francisco Giants. Oh, and they're well, opener. that's a big deal to you guys. Yeah, yeah. Now the Mariners play the Giants today, and I hope the Mariners uh, wipe the floor with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm a Mariners fan. You used to live in Seattle. Yes, I did. Yes, so hopefully it's the year of the Mariner and the Dodger. Yeah, that didn't happen, but uh, the Astros are going (laughs) to win. Maybe half of that will. Astros might win like 120 (laughs) games. They're so good. Yeah, they're really good. Yankees are incredible. Ah, Yankees. Yeah, the the chase this year is going to be fun. The Nationals are really good. The Dodgers are good. The Astros are good. The Yankees are good. So, uh, other than mulching, Cardinals are there. Eating candy and uh, <laughs> bullying from the Dodgers. What else are you going to be talking about on your show? Lots to discuss. Spring football continues. The Cougars have some injuries. Are they being too physical? We'll discuss, and you'll hear from Klein talking on that subject. Also, almost after every practice, we hear how the offense has just been dominating things. Yesterday, a different tune. Often struggled a little bit in the Uh-oh. last week. We'll discuss our thoughts on that. Last night, Villanova won the national championship game. I don't know if you uh, caught any of that, but there was an incredible performance from Dante DiVincenzo off the bench, 31 points in the championship game. We discussed the greatest performance from a player off the bench wow. in BYU history. We okay. also talk with Steve Clark, tight ends coach for BYU football. Also, another guest today, Jeff Benedict, author, good friend of the program. New York Times bestseller. Yes. He only hangs out and does books with, with, uh, with superstars, and his hmm. latest book is Tiger Woods. We are going to get him on the show to talk about ti- Tiger. I thought for a second you were going to say that you had Benedict Cumberbatch on your show. Yes. Maybe. 
We mm. uh, yes, when uh, when the next season of Sherlock happens, we'll get one. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna have him come in and talk in his uh, his American accent, we'll ha- like Doctor Strange, we'll which have is not good. No, Sherlock, it's not. Khan, and uh, Doctor Strange show up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow, man, that, you highlighted something very true that a lot of British actors just don't know how to pull off that American accent. Mm-mm. It's to, it, is it easier for us to do it or? That is a great. It just depends on the actor. To do, uh, and yeah. you know, you uh, his his partner in in crime or crime solving, yeah. uh, Doctor Watson, who's mm-hmm. portrayed by Martin Freeman, is also yes. in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He probably do, he does a better job of Benedict Cumberbatch, but I think he struggles a little bit too. Well, I mean, you just look at. I mean, you had Christian Bale as Batman. He's he's oh, he, he was good. It. He's, he's Welsh. Welsh. Right. You, yeah. you have Henry Cavill, Superman. Yes. And almost everything he plays now, he plays in America. He was I I think he does it pretty well. Remember that time when like people people weren't sure or it was a joke on Saturday Night Live when Gwyneth Paltrow hosted because she was playing all these British parts. She just went up there and she's like this is my real accent and uh Ben Affleck stood up he's like uh that's not your real accent. I don't know if you remember this but uh we dated. Anyway, and now he has a horrible back tattoo. <laughs> You've seen that, right? No. Oh my goodness! It's going to ruin your day. It's going to ruin your day that Batman has a back tattoo, not a bat tattoo, oh, a back tattoo. That would be great if it was a <laughs> if it was a bad back bat tattoo. He has a like Superman sucks tattoo on that back or something. It's a really bad tattoo. That would be awesome. and it's all over his back. Yeah. Well, at least it's not like plan. A head with like the H missing or something. That could really be bad. Anyway. Yeah. Hope you guys have a great show. Knock them dead, as Dr. Matt would say if you were here. Thanks, Half. Thank you. Okay. Wow. The bad back bat tattoo. I got to look that up now. Have you seen that, Becca? I can't say I have. Okay. Anyway, as you know, we like to end each one of our shows with our hero story of the day. And this is another great one. Uh, we've got a hero driver in India who suffered serious burns while steering burning fuel tanker to safety after it set alight uh, at a petrol station. The hero driver jumped in the cab and drove the huge tanker, which could explode at any second, away from the crowds and towards an empty area to minimize the danger. Tanker driver Sajid Khan received severe burns and was hailed for his remarkably selfless actions. Mr. Khan had tried to put the flames out himself with a small fire extinguisher on board the vehicle, but soon realized his efforts were futile, so got behind the wheel and started to drive. Video shows Khan driving the blazing truck out of the station and down an urban road, trailing a river of fire behind it that damaged several market stands but prevented a larger catastrophe in the densely populated center. That's incredible. It is. Khan uh, drove about three miles before he found a place clear from buildings to pull over, then escaped from the vehicle. The locals were terrified but rushed me to the hospital, Khan told the local TV station. Amazingly, Khan only suffered minor burns to his face, hands, and feet, and no one else was injured in the incident. Mm. Sajid Khan, you are the hero of the day. Thank you for your selfless actions. And that's going to do it for the show today, folks. Uh, Look for ways each and every day to be a hero, even if it's a very small thing. You can do it. Those opportunities are around you. BYU Sports Nation is coming up next. We'll be back tomorrow. This is the Matt Townsend Show.